of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. This time around, I spoke to Alex Bellos. But before we dive into that, a quick word from our brand new sponsors. Cue the fancy music. episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast is proudly sponsored by Cubism, the creators of the award-winning Isaac Nine. Now, those of you who attended mine and Joe Morgan's marvellous maths events will have seen Isaac Nine in action as they were one of our sponsors. And indeed, regular listeners of the show may know that Isaac, although not spelt quite as cool, is the name of my little baby boy. So for both reasons, I am thrilled to have Isaac Nine sponsor this episode. Isaac Nine is hands-on, visual and tactile resource that helps pupils in Key Stage 1, 2 and 3 to work collaboratively and develop mental maths strategies. As I have seen with my very own eyes, Isaac Nine consists of 27 colourful and captivating cubes, each with its own unique six sides. These cubes then combine together to form a 3x3x3 structure which stands very tall, 45cm high, with each cube measuring a 15cm square. The faces of the cube display a number, fraction, percentage or shape. Within each box of Isaac 9 there are three sets of 9 cubes allowing three teams to engage in the activities simultaneously. Now this for me is the best bit. The the physical cubes, sorry, are used in conjunction with a range of e-learning materials presented by two likeable and engaging characters called Abagus and Helix. These two robots use an identical set of virtual cubes to introduce the tasks and then, with a task leader appointed, the pupils work collaboratively to solve the task. Once pupils have a plan in place, they do the task, review the team effort, and then stand back and take a good look and ask the question, does our answer make sense? The pupils' answers is displayed as a wall of cubes, which can easily be checked by the roaming teacher, who might want to suggest an alternate arrangement before the robots reveal the correct solution. The solution wall is always the first part of the task as there are additional questions to engage the pupils and encourage further discussion. The resource can be used with or without the software, which includes banks of questions associated with all areas of the curriculum. And of course, and this I absolutely love, one of the most powerful activities is to get the pupils to make up the questions themselves to try out with the other groups in the class. There is virtually nothing in the Key Stage 1 to 3 mathematics curriculum that can't be assessed using Isaac 9. Fractions, decimals, percentages, prime numbers, square numbers, cube numbers, symmetry, factors, multiples, algebra, and even shape and space. Children prefer learning when it's shared, varied, and fun. Isaac 9 provides a shared learning environment rich in problem-solving, reasoning, and fluency where pupils can develop teamwork and resilience. For more details, check out the website isaac9.com, that is I-Z-A-K-9.com, I-Z-A-K-9.com, and there'll be a link to that in the show notes. (laughs) 
And if you're interested in spreading the word about your product, service, or event to thousands of the very best listeners in the whole wide world, then drop me an email at mrbartonmaths at gmail.com to find out more about the sponsor packages available. Anyway, back to today's episode with Alex Bellos. Alex is a journalist, the man who runs The Guardian's fortnightly Monday puzzle, and the author of some of the best-loved maths books of recent times, including Alex's Adventures in Numberland. And as I found out, he's also just a brilliant person to have a chat to. So, in a wide-ranging conversation, we discuss the following things, and I'll tell you what, we discuss plenty more besides. What is Alex's invention of a special mathematical pool table, and how can you get your hands on one? Spoiler alert, you might need around 20 grand. How does Alex think the public's perception of maths has changed? What sort of people answer his Guardian puzzle? What drives Alex to write about maths? Alex shares some anecdotes from his best-known maths books. And then we discuss all things puzzle-related. Where does Alex get his puzzles from? What makes a good puzzle? What is his new book, So You Think You've Got Problems, all about? And Alex gives us a lovely puzzle to ponder before finally we reflect on something that Alex finds important that he's changed his mind about. Now, just a bit of background to this episode. I've loved Alex's writing for many years and hence I was dead excited about this conversation. And then, one hour before we were supposed to record, my broadband went down. 45 minutes on the phone to Sky resulted in them trying to charge me to have an engineer come out and fix their fault. Oh, and whilst I was on the call, would I like to upgrade to Sky Movies? Now, just in case there are any young children listening, I won't tell you my response. So anyway, I jumped in the car, drove the 30 minutes to my mother and father-in-law's house, ran upstairs to the spare bedroom, hooked up to their internet, called up Alex, and did the entire conversation sat on the bed via a dodgy headset. Needless to say, I was in a bit of a ropey mood, which subsequently evaporated about two seconds into the conversation as Alex launched into one of his many stories. What followed was two brilliant hours of me listening to an incredibly passionate and gifted storyteller in action. It was a sheer delight. Two things to mention before we start. Um, I just want to give a massive shout out to my Patreon sponsors. Your monthly contributions help pay for the hosting of this podcast and more importantly, allow me to treat my wife and son to make up for the hours I spent locked in my office recording and putting episodes together. There is no pressure at all. I do these podcasts for fun and I always will. But if you did want to support the podcast, you can visit patreon.com forward slash Mr. Barton Maths and there'll be a link to that in the show notes. And the other thing I just wanted to mention, my other podcast series, Inside Exams, is now back for season two. And there are some cracking episodes lined up where I go behind the scenes of an awarding body to find out how exams are written, marked, checked, standardised and much more. You can check out uh, the episodes by following the links in the show notes or just Google Inside Exams Podcast or just search wherever you you get your podcast from. Anyway, without further ado, let me introduce Alex Bellos. As I say, the sound is a little bit weird due to the headset, but actually it's not come out too bad. I might do all my interviews just sat on a bed at my mother and father-in-law's house in future. I really hope you enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I'll see you on the other side. (laughs) 
So, Alex, we start, as we always do on the podcast, with your maths speed dating questions. So, question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Well, this is easy for me. 110, and I say that because I actually don't have a favourite number. And the fact that I don't have a favourite number, on discovering that lots of people do, I surveyed, I did an internet poll to try and find the world's favourite number. 44,000 people entered it, and which was a Amazing. One and a half thousand different numbers were submitted. Wow. The lowest whole number to get null point, to get no votes, was 110. So I felt that sorry, sad number needs someone to love it. It needs some love. <laughs> so I thought that now becomes my favourite number. <laughs> That's a great answer. I love that. Flick it out. 110. Fantastic. Superb. Um, second question then for you, Alex. Um, what was your favourite topic in maths as a student? And this can be at any age you like. Okay, so... What I got most excited about when I was at university and I was doing the philosophy of math, I studied maths and philosophy. I was really excited by this whole idea that you can get two different types of infinity and this kind of sort of logical analysis of kind of uh, meta problems of, of things like what is knowledge, what is infinity, how can we know, all, 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 all that kind of things. But that sort of excited me most then. But I think all the way through studying math, probably from the Pythagorean theorem, there were just bits that I was just, wow. It kind of, it was a new step. And each time I got onto the new step and sort of the view was different, I kind of enjoyed that. I'm not sure there was any particular thing that I liked more than anything else. Fantastic. Superb. And the third question is a bit, a bit of a weird one, Alex, so I'm going to be perfectly honest here. I'm not too sure what your kind of job is, and we'll dig more into that <laughs> when, when we get into it. But if you were to do something completely different, um, what would it be? Um... It's so funny because the question is, what would you do if you were in education? And I was thinking, uh, am I in education or not? Well, I kind of am and I kind of not. And then I thought, I've kind of got the job that I would sort of really like and want to do anyway. But to, in the spirit of the question, I think I'm the sort of person that always likes to say, oh, do you know what? That's a good idea. If I was doing something else, I'd want to, you know, a sort of entrepreneur of crazy ideas, kind of mad inventor type person. I was thinking that would be really fun, but actually it probably is lots of time just bookkeeping. So it actually probably wouldn't be that much fun. But I have a sort of romantic idea of, because as a, as a journalist, as a writer, you're constantly coming up with ideas for stories. But I thought, well, just say I came up with an idea for a, um, a way to cut a mango. <laughs> things like that little it, it wouldn't it wouldn't it be fun to take it to market or like um uh in fact so i, I kind of designed or invented this new sort of type of pool table with an uh in the shape of an ellipse and i thought wouldn't that be really fun to sort of market it and become this inventor and take it to toy fairs and trade shows but actually very soon you get bogged down with, with different types of wood and sort of an annoying carpenters and all stuff like that and I just thought, you know what, I, I, I like having the idea, but I don't really like the the, the bureaucracy of how, life. How far did you get with the pool table? Did, did you get a model made? So, yeah, so what I did, I had this idea. Um, the idea was, was kind of there before. In fact, in the 1960s, a guy in America made a pool table, which was an ellipse. And so the ellipse has two focal points, two focus points. And... You have no pockets around the cushion. You have a black dot on one focus point and you have the hole on the other focal point. And so what this means in an ellipse um, is that if you put the ball on the black dot, i.e. on one focus point, hit it, 
it should re wherever it rebounds it should always go in the hole <laughs> and i thought this would be a really fun thing to do actually when you do it you realize that it would go in the hole if you hit it at exactly the right speed with zero spin and there was no drag and actually what is a in the perfect math land it would go in yes. but in real physics world there's all there's you know damping and friction and like air resistance that kind of gets in the way um so anyway i had this idea and i thought how could i make this pool table and so i googled who makes pool tables and i found these amazing guys in essex and it turns out that they are the world the best in the world at making bespoke pool tables and they've <laughs> made pool tables of different shapes and sizes for people and send them all, all over the world and but they're, they're handmade and i said how much would it cost you to make this this little pool table and they said well we make, we, it's going to be about between 12 and 15 thousand pounds wow and i was like okay firstly i can't afford it <laughs> secondly i was living in a top floor flat at the time i wouldn't be able to get it up the stairs <laughs> and then i had this sort of brainwave um which was i had recently met a billionaire <laughs> right and this billionaire um, I'd met him because he's David Harding, who essentially funded the Science Museum Maths Gallery, and also used to, his company's called Winton, and they used to fund the Royal Society Book Prize, which might be nominated for. So he was a kind of a figure who is sort of circulates and likes to go to these things and likes to put money back into the promotion of science. And amazingly, he'd given me his card. So I just sent him an email and said, Dear David, I've got this brilliant idea. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's too expensive for me. I can't get it in my flat. So this is this is the proposal. You are going to buy an elliptical pool table. It costs, you know, £15,000. And your office will be the coolest office in the world. Um, it, it does what you like in promotion of science because it's a kind of public object that it's not an ellipse just for the hell of it. It's an ellipse because it's in the embodiment of some really interesting mathematical idea. And so you get all the cred for that and it's fun. Your staff will love you. And all I want is kind of sort of a, some kind of moral or ownership <laughs> of it. So if I want to take it to schools, you're going to let me take it to schools. Yes. If I want to have someone come and play it, then I'm allowed to go into your office and play it. And I think within a few hours, I guess this is this is the, the mind of a billionaire. With a few hours, I got a short email. Yeah, brilliant. Talk to my charity guy. Wow. And it was linked. And I think he was slightly, oh, God, I've got to deal with some prank. <laughs> but actually, it was fine. And I mean, it took several months. And I went to Essex several times. And it was really fun developing it. And it, 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 it's been, it has been, it's kind of a great fun thing to do. And now I've done it. And for a while, I could say that I was an inventor and I was invited to a conference as an influencer, which I've never been before, which is very exciting. Um, and then, you know, I had, yeah, I would get, I've had maybe a thousand emails from around the world, people who want to buy one. Wow. And because it, I've been on the number file channel a few times and one of the, the most watched videos clips they have it's actually the second most watched clip has had about no seven or eight million views is of me presenting the pool table mm. so lots of people they see it and they think i want one of those and i say okay 15 grand <laughs> and they and they, they then they don't ever hear from them ever again 
<laughs> Although I have sold two, or the guy I've got two sales with the guy. One from a mysterious man in Austria. I like to think of some kind of James Bond person <laughs> or villain, probably, who has got his own room with his elliptical pool table. <laughs> and the I think it's the University of Waterloo in Canada, their math department, because they thought it would be a great fun thing to to have. So I'll tell you what, Alex. We, we, I mean, there's a danger we could just talk pool tables all, all night here, which I, I've not I've not ruled out at all. But what's the? How does the game work? Is it just like one ball just to get it in the hole? What? What? Did you? Did, yes. Like, so this is right. Rules or this, this, this is right. So there's the table, yep. and then we think, great, we've got this table. <laughs> it's going to be very boring if all you're doing is trying to shoot yes. the ball in the pocket just by with only one ball. Yeah on the table so i thought let's try and make a pool game and so with a friend of mine we went to winton and we were playing around with it and first we started with lots of balls and then we realized that what was happening was that gradually if you didn't get the balls in the balls would it's like that's kind of centrifugal force they all started to land slightly on the edges close to the cushion and sort of clogged things up and it wasn't that fun. So what was most fun was to do it just with three balls, or, or sorry, four balls. You've got the cue ball and then three balls that you pot. A black and one white and one red. And it works as a kind of rapid fire game that you start off by naming the color that you want. And then you have to, when you break, you have to hit that color. Um, and then it's, it's fun when there are only two other balls on the table because it's quite easy to work out which way to hit the ball in, or, in order to hit the cue ball in order yes. to hit the ball that you want to hit. Because obviously, for, for, wherever you are, there are always exactly four ways to hit something in the pocket because of the symmetries. So sometimes, for the three balls on the table, two of those will be blocked, but you'll always have one possible oh, okay, way of yeah. getting to it. Whereas when there are too many balls, it's just like, it, it's all a bit messy. And maybe maybe if you got really skillful at it, you could introduce more balls. But we thought it was quite fun. And there's that sort of excitement of having fast games. Sometimes the games would last two or three shots. Sometimes they'd last up to 15 minutes. And it's like unpredictability it was fun and it was quite satisfying. It was, it was almost like, you know, kind of table tennis or something, the, you know, best of fire or, or, or snooker, I suppose, but in a much shorter amount of time so you can say okay best to 10 and it would only take you half an hour or something i, th- I think this has got potential this I, I, i'm seeing this breaking i'm seeing this kind of be like the 2020 of cricket this is this is the kind of pool variant breaking out maybe the olympics or something well like I, I, I i totally i'm totally with you i'm totally with you the problem is you have to find a way of producing that table yes. for say two thousand pounds maximum yes, yes and the only way you're going to do that is if it's sort of a factory is doing it with um, economies of scale, etc. And I couldn't, I find it quite hard to actually speak to these factories and I never managed to, you know, I sent several emails to the big factories. I spoke to so there some, some people in Hong Kong who wanted it for their pool table and the, 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 their pool club and were saying, yes, we're right by China, we could get it done <laughs> cheap in China. And then it just, it just becomes something else and, you know, too busy with other stuff <laughs> but if anyone is listening who wants to spend 
um, their times trying to work out a way to produce these tables for up to £2,000, then <laughs> go for it. Go for it. Fantastic. Well, super. Well, I think we broke the record for the longest speed dating answer there, Alex. But <laughs> if that's Snail sets the tone, yeah, <laughs> this could be a 24-hour uh, conversation. This, but I love that. Fantastic. Well, I tell you, what, Alex, we be- we best get on to your career then, because as I say, okay. I I've, I've got vague ideas, but I'd love you to just take us on a, a bit of a journey for for how it all started for you and and how you've got to, and in fact, where you are uh, today. Okay, so I'll take chronologically and I'll try and do it as fast as possible. I um, started being quite good at maths when I was quite young um, and at five, six school. I really enjoyed it. I was very good at mental arithmetic. And also there were certain things like my mum's Hungarian and the Hungarians are really proud of being sort of better than anyone else at mathematics. I sort of took this to heart. So I kind of felt that it was my vocation and I absolutely... Love math. It's always my best subject. I was always going to study at university. But back then, maths was a ghetto of... I know you like to talk about how ideas and images of maths has changed, but when I was growing up in the 70s in Scotland, it was really uncool. It was really nerdy. Um, And I kind of wanted to hang out with the cool kids. So I was also quite into writing in other subjects and art and stuff like that. And I was always complete gossip so I always did the, the, the school newspaper and then school magazine and then you know I got to university to study math and philosophy so I could have one foot in both the kind of the writing and the maths but I ended up spending most of my time not studying but doing the university newspaper which I edited and even though I did okay quite well it, I could probably have, have carried on in, in academia my dad's an academic and I probably thought, well, I don't do what, what he's done. And all my friends are journalists. I ended up becoming a trainee journalist at the Brian Evening Argus. So I worked myself up from regional press to national press. Um, and I got a job as a news reporter at The Guardian in my mid-20s. And in my late-20s, I decided to go to South America and was made the correspondent for The Guardian and Observer in South America. I ended up writing a book on Brazil seen through called Football. So it was... It was supposedly about Brazilian football but really it was using football to write about Brazil I did that the book did quite well I came back to the UK I didn't really know what I was going to do because I couldn't carry on writing about Brazil not being there I didn't really want to go back to the Guardian and just be a news reporter again and then a friend of mine who's a literary agent just said why do you do maths I remember at the time I just thought oh yeah I'm not sure um said go and read a bunch of books on maths and so I went to the library and took a bunch of bunch of books out on maths and I thought I can remember sort of lying on my sofa trying to read these books on maths all kind of impenetrable and quite boringly written and ended up just like falling asleep and then one day I just thought that's brilliant because obviously maths is not boring why was I falling asleep it's because the books were a bit boring and I thought what I need to do is that I need to write about this subject that was kind of my first love, but using all the techniques yeah. that I had learned from almost two decades as a journalist. And I started to think that I was actually trying to do something quite similar. When I started to write Alex's Adventures in Numberland, I realized I was doing exactly what I was doing when I was writing football. So when I was writing about Brazilian football, um, I lived in Brazil. I speak Portuguese. I would go around the country and interview people who spoke Portuguese and then translate it into my own language and explain what their lives were like to people who had never been to Brazil. 
And in maths, it was kind of the same. I was writing Alex's Adventures in Numberland for people who say they don't like maths, just for the general reader, for people who they might have done maths at school. I definitely wasn't thinking of the maths community at all. So I thought, well, they, they already like maths. They already know this stuff. So I felt I was the, you know, the foreign correspondent in the world of maths. I would go and it's for, it's reportage. I would go and interview people whose lives connect to maths in some way. Um, and because I'm sort of a mathematician or a kind of numerator, I'm not afraid of talking to a mathematician as, about mathematical ideas. I can then translate those ideas into an, a way, a sort of easy language and communicate them to non-mathematicians. So I sort of feel that I'm a kind of foreign correspondent in the world of maths. Um, the book came out almost 10 years ago, Alex's Adventures Dumberland, and I was not really expecting for how well it did, um, which f- firstly, the maths community really embraced it and really liked it. And now I think I sort of know why, because firstly, it was something that they could have and give to their friends. Say, look, this is what I do. <laughs> yeah. And this is why it's really fun. But also math, I mean, it might be changing now. And also with so much media and social media sharing fun things about math. When I grew up, I was never told anything about the culture and the history, and it wasn't presented to me with kind of humor and anecdote. And when it is, it just enriches yes. the whole subject. And and I think that the, the, the people in the math community just were really grateful to to read someone who's writing sort of seriously and with respect, and not really dumbing down. Because I think I don't think I dumb down. I think I write in a simple and clear way. But I don't. I, I hope I don't dumb down um and they enjoyed it and also because it was you know this is, this is you know I went, to, I went to journalism college so i know how to write sort of simple sentences and short words in the active etc etc it turns out that you can actually be quite young and read my books and still understand them yes. even though the concepts might be quite difficult but i try and really write it in, in, in a simple way so it's become something that is on school reading lists that i get children you know as young as maybe 12 coming, you know, dog-eared copy of the book saying, could you sign it? So I didn't expect that, but that I, I had sort of made that connection. And what was great about that, having an audience within the mass community, but also in the, 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 the general kind of read community, is that I've managed to make a living for the last 10 years essentially writing math books. I mean, the, by far the largest proportion of what I earn is on the advances and the sales that I make from writing my books. I've now written um, with Alex Adventureland, uh, Alex's Adventures in Numberland, and which is a mathematical ideas, mostly kind of GCSC level ideas. There's Through the Looking Glass, which is bringing in some kind of A-level type ideas like imaginary numbers and things like that. And then I've done three puzzle books, Can You Solve My Problems, Puzzle Ninja, and the one that's just out, So You Think You've Got Problems. And... I did these two colouring books with Edmund Harris, who's a British mathematician living uh, in Arkansas. He's a professor there. He's an amazing mathematical artist. And our colouring books are actually just galleries of really interesting mathematical ideas sort of expressed visually. And I'm, I, I, I'm waiting. You, in publishing, you're only kind of as good, or you can only command and advance as good as your last book. Yes. I'm kind of waiting for it to drop off because I, <laughs> because I know it, and I know it will, and I've had a good 10 years, but so far I'm still doing it. And, and I love it because, you know, I'm the, the, the challenge. I, I like the challenge. I, I like the material. The maths kind of turns me on. Um, and I like the challenge of trying to take something 
which is kind of abstract and conceptually challenging and to try and make it entertaining so that most people can, can enjoy it. Um, and I enjoy that and I would like to carry on, carry on doing it. Uh, you know, there are lots of ways you can make math entertaining. You know, you've got Matt Parker does it through comedy. You've got um, number file, you know, it's through the kind of visual explanations. But what I feel most comfortable with is just the written word. I know that that might mean that my audience is all over the age of 50. <laughs> but I'm, 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 I'm of that. What I like is, the, is sitting down and like telling a story with words. Um, and that's sort of what I kind of think my niche is and what I've enjoyed doing and where I am now. That's fantastic, that. We're going to dive into some of uh, your favourite stories from some of those wonderful books that you've mentioned. But just a quick question, Alex. Again, I'm fascinated by kind of people's day-to-day jobs and stuff. So we're recording this on a on a Wednesday evening. What for, yes. example, what, for example, are you doing tomorrow? What would what would like tomorrow look like for you? Is it just writing? Is it what would a, a typical day look like? Right. So that's an interesting question because tomorrow is totally free and i'm so looking forward to it because today um i have so i've got two young kids and i do most of the childcare. so the only way that i've found that can make it work because my, my wife leaves about seven in the morning and he gets back at six is for me to get up at 5 a.m and so i get up at five and i do about an hour and a half before the kids get up and then once they get up I deal with all of them, feed them, clothe them, take them to the nursery, come back, and then I'm kind of exhausted. Yes. But will have, in that hour and a half before, given myself like a list of tasks, and I start yes. going going through the tasks, and then it will finish. In, well, I have a, a nap in the middle of the day because I'm kind of continental like that. <laughs> and also, I think that the thing with writing, there is no point writing if you're not 100 percent there's just absolutely no point yes um so i i've learned just from experience much better to go to sleep for half an hour and do 10 minutes yeah sharp writing than an hour's worth of sort of yawning staring at your screen so i'm I'm quite um practical like that if i'm feeling a bit tired i just go and lie down and sleep and i have the luxury of being able to do that but so i do super long days and it all depends also at what stage in researching a book I am. And at the moment, I am at the beginning stages of thinking about my next book project, which is, I don't think I've really mentioned this. Well, is this a world exclusive? Anyone, is a world exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> is a puzzle book on linguistics. Oh, wow. And I'm moving over slightly to linguistics. Essentially, the... Nugget was, I've got this puzzle column in The Guardian, I've had it for about four years, and people do send in interesting puzzles. And a couple of years ago, someone sent in this amazing puzzle about the Warrell Piri, who are an <laughs> Aboriginal group near Alice Springs in Australia. And it turns out that the Warrell Piri um, have this amazing social structure where everyone in the community is born with a certain skin, what they call it a skin. I mean, it's almost like a kind of a house at boarding school. You know, they're, right. they're one of eight types. And this type determines quite a lot of important things within the community. So if you're type one, you can only marry people who are type 
two, for example, right. or if you're type three, it can only marry, say, type four. So it determines who you marry, but also determines the skin of your child. So it's, it's, it's essentially this really complicated mathematical group. It's like group theory <laughs> within this community. And the, the puzzle was, some, was something quite fun, which is you walk into a wild party community and you meet someone and they say, my brother's sister's mother, blah, blah, blah. And you have to work, yes. work out by looking at the group what the relationship is. And I thought this is really fun. It's simple deductive logic. But more than that, I've learned something that I didn't know that is kind of blows your mind that these supposedly you know, non, how do you say it? these days non-developed communities yes. actually have these amazingly sophisticated rules that seem much more sophisticated than what we have now so that, that's interesting and then i try to find out where this puzzle was from and it turns out it comes from the north american computational linguistics olympiad <laughs> which is this competition and there's a parallel one in the uk it's called the uk linguistics olympiad anyway this linguistics olympiad is this kind of brotherhood of people it's essentially academic linguists who are trying to encourage GCSE and A-level kids to maybe go in and study modern languages by running these competitions and there are you know you've heard of the maths olympiad mm. there's a physics olympiad there's a chemistry olympiad the only olympiad that there is that is for a subject that isn't taught is linguistics right okay which means that all these questions assume no knowledge so it's perfect for someone who is, you know, my age, just dipping, I know nothing about the subject, dipping into it. And most of them are really mathematical. Um, it's all about kind of, it's, it's like deciphering codes, but it's deciphering a code where you think, oh, I'm learning a language at the same time. Yes. So I've had this kind of diversion. And I, and I feel that, you know, I've got quite a loyal following now of, doing this puzzle every two weeks and I kind of know what people like, what people don't like. And I just feel that my readers are going to really enjoy these puzzles mm. because it's like what you get, what I try and do in my books. So even with the puzzle books, the puzzle books are not just here's a puzzle, here's another puzzle, here's another puzzle. It's more, you know, a hundred years ago, this mathematician did such and such. And then he came up with this puzzle, which was then adapted by someone else. And then this other thing happened. So you can read them a bit like a story. Yes. So I'm hoping to tell so it's the story of, you know, the decipherment of hieroglyphics, the decipherment of cuneiform, which was the, the first ever um, written script that, that, that exists, so the first ever numbers or cuneiform numbers, and the decipherment of Maya. We know the Mayas had this really interesting um, base 20 system. So it's kind of math, but seen through kind of culture. And I'm at, right at the beginning of the research of that. So I'm just reading everything that I can. So I'm not really writing anything. I'm just reading as much as I can. So that is what I look forward to doing tomorrow. Nice. And so that today, what I did is, after getting up and doing a couple of hours, did, did the kids, then Brady from Number File oh, showed yes. up. I did a couple of videos for him. Then I went to the, got in the tube, obviously live in London, went to the Emmanuel Centre and had to give a talk to 600 GCSE students as part of Maths in Action, which is a kind of, I don't know if they're a charity or not, but it's, it's kind of an educational thing where they have a day where they have a whole bunch of math speakers. Oh, yes. And I was one of them. Um, Matt Scroggs, who does Chalk Dust, was another one of them. 
Anyway, it's kind of amazingly raucous. And I, I don't know if it's the best lot or the worst lot. So they've been there for a day, 600 kids <laughs> in this kind of church area. So it's almost in the round. You're on the stage. There's got this big throne and the you know, stained glass. And they're just kind of giddy and hysterical. <laughs> and I had to give a talk. And it was it, it was funny. So one, one of the puzzles that's in, in my book is an old classic puzzle. And I talk a bit about the history. It comes from one of the first ever magic books, which is the, the, the handcuffs puzzle. Just so you've got a rope and you tie the rope so it's one person's wrist and the other wrist. So it's, it's a kind of a tight loop on each wrist. Yes. And you put another rope on the other person and then you interlock the ropes so they kind of can't get out. Yes. How do you unlock yourselves? And so what I did, I, I've got four ropes. I, I got two boys and two girls, two volunteers. <laughs> so I had the boys and the girls and they were both connected and they were trying to disconnect <laughs> themselves. But it was, it was just, crazy it was like being in a kind of boxing match <laughs> the kids were screaming and cheering and the, the 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 stage was like a bit too big they were either side when i was looking at one and trying to explain and like what they were doing what the problem was the other people said no we've just done it and i was like i don't believe you and, uh, it was absolute chaos i mean it was a lot of fun and i think the kids had a good time but i'm not sure that i <laughs> taught them enough about topology exactly about what I wanted to teach them about topology. <laughs> it was quite good fun. So I came back and I was exhausted. And then I'm, thankfully, my wife's putting the kids to bed and I'm talking to you. So I have very, very different days. <laughs> it's a long answer to the short question. Fantastic. Super. <laughs> oh, that's absolutely fascinating, Alex. <laughs> um, I want to ask you now, it's it's a question I ask, ask all the guests. And again, it, um, when it's a teacher, I ask this in terms of a lesson, but you can interpret this however you want. Um, I'm always interested in, in favourite failures. So something that didn't go according to plan, whether it's a talk, whether it's some form of writing you did. But crucially, what, what did you learn from the experience? So do you have any favourite failures, Alex? So... Um... I've given many talks that have died. <laughs> right. That, 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 I, that I have died. Um, I can remember because because what interests me, you know, I'm not a teacher. Maybe in another life I would have been a teacher, and there's a lot of kind of teaching I guess that I do in terms of imparting information. But I don't have a PGCE. I haven't ever stood in a class and taught people, so I don't want to feel that I'm telling people how to teach or that I have any ideas about how to teach. What I do know is that I know I can make maths fun and lively and I hope people can somehow respond to that and it may inspire them how, however they're going to do it. But quite often I do that not by talking about the maths but by talking about the context and sometimes I've gone to talks that talk about the context and people have just been you know, almost you know, disgusted to Tunbridge Wells. This is, this is, this is just idiotic. This, this isn't maths. And to which I say, I guess you're right. And it has made me make sure that I know exactly. I'm always really asked clearly, what is the mathematical level of the audience? What do they want? What are their ages? So I, I research that a lot more clearly. Um, in terms of failures, I have had books that have failed. And yeah, the, the book of mine that has done the worst is Puzzle Ninja. And actually, it's almost it's one of my favorite books. The Puzzle Ninja is a book of Japanese puzzles. And I thought because everyone, not everyone, people love Sudoku. Yes. In 
general. Everyone knows what Sudoku is. If people didn't love it, why is it in almost every magazine? Yes. Why do you go to every news agent that there are hundreds of Sudoku books? The thing is about Sudoku, it gets boring quite quickly because you work out the strategies, and then all you're doing is the same old strategies. And yes, it's, yes. It, it's, it's not actually that interesting. Um, whereas in Japan, they've invented hundreds of much more interesting grid logic puzzles. And so I went to Japan to find out all about this community. Um, they make them all by hand, meaning that they don't generate them wow. by computer. They, once they've got the idea, they f- fill in a completed grid, then they work backwards in order to give the solver the most entertaining way to the solution. Right. So they will make you pass really interesting patterns. They'll do things that look like they're difficult but are easy. It's, 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 it's a complete, it's art, it's, it's beautiful. Um, and, you know, I bought or bought the rights from all these, these people to do their puzzles. It came out and I said, in Japan, the way they do Japanese books, they often do, it's the size of a hardback, but it's actually a paperback with flaps and with that beautiful, everything in Japan, you know, there's, there's, there's that, they do kind of small things really beautifully and kind of in a sort of refined way. So we had this beautiful kind of quite minimalist design um, and the book came out and it just didn't sell. And I think one of the reasons why it didn't sell is that the whole idea of the book was kind of basically flawed. <laughs> right. um, you walked into a bookstore and you saw um, the, on the puzzle shelf the Sherlock Holmes puzzle book, the Penguin puzzle book, the all these, you know, the Ordnance Survey puzzle book. What people seem to like in their puzzle books is something that very clearly says what it is and is a kind of almost Victorian, traditional, oh, right. British, okay. homely brand. Why would you want to buy this puzzle ninja? Right. So it's, right. there's something kind of threatening about it. <laughs> yeah. it. It just didn't work. Actually, now we're thinking about it. I've got a... a, a Another similar thing about failure, which is something that I've also learned. Um, I did these picture books, coloring books with Edmund Harris. And we I did them because there was about four, five years ago, there's this amazing boom in coloring books. And I thought, I've always wanted to do something visual and mathematical. And I met Edmund and he was the guy to do it with. And I just said to my agent, I said, you know, what about if there's this boom for coloring books? Maybe a publisher's going to be interested in a mass coloring book. And she put the word out and straight away they're like, yes, yes, do it, do it as fast as possible. So Edmund <laughs> and I, we did it in like two months or something, a whole lot. And what we thought was it's maths images, or it's images from maths. Um, maths is seen as a bit of a turnoff by many people, complicated, difficult. So we need to as a title, position it like all the lovely kind of nature kind of coloring books. So we ended up calling it Snowflake Seashell Star. It's nice sort of alliterative. It's kind of peaceful because you know that the star and the snowflake and the seashell are kind of mathematical in their kind of ordered way. And it it came out in the UK and just kind of did really did, did nothing, did nothing. In America... 
they were interested. And our publisher there were like, Snowflake Seashell Star, it's not going to work. We want to <laughs> call it Patterns of the Universe. Nice. You know, a math coloring book, really big. They were saying, no, no, we want to basically say exactly what it is, completely unashamed of saying it's maths. Um, and they were totally right. It became a bestseller in the U.S., and did nothing at all in the UK. Yeah. And that made me realize that actually, be proud of what it is. Don't try and pretend that it's something else. Because actually, Snowflake Seashell Star, what it did, it just blended in with everything else. And people thought, oh, it's not that special. Yes. Whereas you should actually go out there and say, you know, this is the math thing. And people respond to that. And actually, there's a lot of people out there that now just think, I want the maths thing. Yes, yes. Either because they like maths or because they think, oh, I'm curious. So I think that what I learned there is just to be a bit more proud. <laughs> that, that's great. And uh, at the risk of taking us down um, another tangent here, Alex, the, am I right saying the um, US changed the name? Was it, was it Alex Adventures in Numberland that has a different name in the US? Yes, as well? that does. And why, why, was, const- why, why was that? And it's a constant pain because in the age of the internet, just things aren't the same. So I'm always so emailed by people said, you didn't tell me it was exactly the same book. Yes, anyway, the yes, story yes. is, I came up with the idea, Alex's Adventures in Numberland, and we were like, well, with, with, with my editor, and we were sort of really pleased. We thought, oh, this is really nice and charming. And I went to America, and America were like, not going to work. Who's <laughs> Alex? And I was saying, that's the whole point. Like, I'm Alex. Um, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> I think what it is, is that Alice's, it was before the, the Johnny Depp movie, right, Alice Wonderland, had right. come out. They know what it is, but it's not as cherished and as part of culture as Alice in Wonderland in, right, is in the UK, okay, okay. where it's probably the most cherished Victorian yes. child um, story. So we were coming up with other ideas, and then I came up with the pun here's looking at euclid it's very good. which it's very good <laughs> thank you which they thought was good and also they got it so to any people who don't get it it's obviously because here's looking at you kid is the line that humphrey bogart says at casablanca and we all know who euclid is and so i came up with this and i thought Do you know what this is actually better than oh, alex's no. numberland oh, no. maybe i should go back to the uk people and say what do you think? And I did. And they said, I was kind of testing it on a few friends. And they just said, who's Euclid? <laughs> <laughs> so in America, it was who's Alex. Who's, who's Euclid? And then I realized, you know, this is why American English and, and British English, it's, you know, we're, we're, we're two nations separated by a common language. Yeah. That is, is very, very different. But I got really interested in this thing about why Euclid is known by every American. And I've got some friends who are married to Americans mm. and, you know, no random Americans. And I would say, here's looking at Euclid. And they would all go, oh, yeah, that's funny. And I said, do you know who Euclid is? They'd go, yeah, yeah, it's like the math person. Whereas in the UK, I'd say, here's looking at Euclid. And people would go, who's Euclid? And say, you've never heard of Euclid? And then I was thinking, well, why is this the case? So in New York, Euclid Avenue is a subway stop. So right. if you're in New York, you're going to actually at least know the word but maybe not who yes. he is. And then if you Google Euclid, there are places in America called Euclid. Actually, there are loads of street names around America called Euclid. And then this is my theory. I might be wrong, but there's a nice theory. And it's that the founding fathers 
in America are all Masons. We're all Masons or very close ties to sort of Masonic lodges. Obviously, uh, the Masons, the symbol of the Masons is the compass and straight edge. It's all about this kind of logical thinking. Um, and that's, you know, to do with it. the Masons, but also the way that the founding fathers were thinking kind of logic and progress, etc. So when America was being built and with the strength of the Masons and the prominence of Euclid within that whole thinking, they would call towns after Euclid. They would name streets after Euclid. And so it just became something that's part of the culture because it's part of in a sense, the birth and the growth um, of America. But we just don't have that. We, we, we just don't have that. Yes. Um, and, it, and it must be the case that also they mention Euclid, the way they teach geometry there. That, I mean, I'm surprised you get some people here who are, you know, maybe not mathematicians, but sciencey people who haven't heard of Euclid, yes, which I, yes. find, I find amazing. I find amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I got an email just the other day that there, um, some publisher is, is, republishing all of um, Euclid's elements in, in brand new colour form and stuff like that so maybe it's going to come back into prominence um, yeah I, I don't know but ju- just just on that Alex um, I had uh, when my book uh, my How I Wish I Taught Maths whenever that people started to buy that in the US before I had a US publisher my first ever review on Amazon.com not the co.uk was from an angry um, an American reader <laughs> who said he's not even going to read the book because I can't spell math in the title and if I, haven't, if I haven't even bothered to get the spelling checked on the title, why should he read it? But fortunately, he still gave me three out of five stars, so I'll, I'll take that. If that's the harshest <laughs> critic, I'll, I'll take that one. Anyway, right, let's um, let's move on then. We've, we've kind of kind of skirted around this, but just perception of, of, of mathematics. And I'm, I'm interested because you, you mentioned in, in the 70s that it certainly wasn't... Um, the cool thing to do to be, be, be studying maths but I, I certainly get the sense from from both talking to kids and also just the general kind of sense from the public and the culture and stuff like that that it's getting a bit of a, a kind of cooler image do, do you get that same sense definitely definitely I think that probably the greatest contribution to a change in perception of maths is the rise in technology and computing and that tech is kind of cool. Mm. And if you want to get into coding, it's mathematics skills. If you want to kind of understand how to use your iPhone, all those things, um, you've got to be aware of, uh, you've got to be comfortable around that. And that also means that who are the sort of pop culture heroes? You know, Steve Jobs. Yes. There's a movie about him. And even people like Alan Turing, movie about him now, um, Stephen Hawking. So there are lots of really cool um, people who wouldn't have been cool 40 years ago, who are genuinely mainstream celebrities that people think are cool. Um, you've got a Big Bang Theory, um, sort of, I guess, Silicon Valley. So yes. you've got the kind of just the the culture is a lot more loving and in to tech and computing which is basically mathematics it's a branch of mathematics essentially and so that is that is really important i think and another thing which can't be discounted in how math is seen as different 
is I think in lots of ways, maybe because we've become a bit more Americanized, maybe it's the kind of X factory type things. People want to be, you know, people want to be kind of rich and famous. Mm. And I think you learn pretty quickly that if what you want to do is make money, do math a level. (laughs) So I think you get lots of people who are quite focused and realize that you can't say, well, I'm no good at numbers or math is boring because you're doing yourself out of kind of earning potential. Mm. So I think that that means that people take math really seriously. I mean, I think math is the most popular A-level at the moment. Um, And I think that if you, it's also gone from being male dominated to being much more, I think it's almost 50, yeah. 50. Uh, I don't know about further maths, but definitely I just think maths a level in general, I think in results now, there's nothing between them. Mm. I know universities have a lot more women than I'm not sure it's quite 50, 50 yet. The, the problem is academic staff is very male dominated, but when you have just as many girls as guys, so it's kind of like normal thing to do. Um, it's not a, a, a male ghetto mm. when people are doing it because they think it's going to be useful and helpful. Yes. It's not, why do I have to study algebra? I'm never going to use it. Mm. Um, and all these things that people used to say before. I'm sure it must be also because the teaching is better or the teaching is more sensitive to making children not feel, you know, Oh, it's too difficult. It's too boring. Yes. It's um, don't 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 tell me off for being wrong. I don't like being wrong. Um, I'm sure I mean, the amount of thought that's gone into math teaching and how important it is. I mean, especially at primary level, mm. that, that I think that must be reaping benefits. I mean, when I, I was part of the set in the 70s, that was taught set theory because they thought that it needed to get really really abstract. And I can remember just thinking, this is completely bizarre, because I learned set theories like a seven-year-old, wow. you know, drawings, drawing sets with each other and one-to-one correspondence. Yes, yes. It was kind of mad. And this was like an experiment that then they realized <laughs> this is crazy. And the history of that is quite interesting. It was brought in because of the Cold War. And in America, they thought that... Um, Sputnik was before the American space program. They thought that the, the Russians were getting really good. That's because they're better at science. So they needed to revamp science and they needed to actually get kids thinking very abstractly much younger. So they brought in this thing called the new math and that sort of trickled and had influence in different countries. And where I was, I know in Scotland in the 70s, the <laughs> school where I was adapted this. Anyway, then I stopped doing it. I moved to England. The next time I did set theory when I was, you know, 20 at university. Um, but now I think that at primary school, there's no way that they would go that abstract that quickly. Um, and it's much more about concrete examples yes. and, you know, peers teaching each other so that it's not the more kind of cohesive classroom. So I don't I'm not in the classroom. Of the classrooms that I've visited and the articles that I've read, I think that teaching must have had some effect. I mean, my own role in this is that I always think that the worst thing and the things that keeps it behind is not the children of today, it's the parents of today who, when the kids go back, they say, oh, I can't do this homework, and the parents say, well, I was rubbish at maths too, mm-hmm. or don't give them the support, or when the kids say, I find it hard, it's boring, they said, yeah, that's exactly what I thought. Yes. So I feel that my books originally were aimed at the parents, 
so the parents to say this this is interesting so that they can actually be more positive role models it's, it's really interesting you say that I, I think you're right again I can, I can only speak from the teaching side and specifically the maths teaching side but I think you're right I mean I'm, I'm obviously going to say this I, th- I think the teaching has got better but the um, the technology's really helped because if I think back even so this is my 15th year of being involved in teaching if I look back and think how I could teach a lesson 15 years ago to, compared to what I can do now in terms of using things like Desmos GeoGebra Wolfram Alpha fire up a number file video get some incredible visualisation going it can you can just you can just do things that you you just weren't able to do before and, and for some kids that that doesn't matter too much some kids are fine with the abstract some kids are fine without the technology side but you can just you can just excite and, and make things a lot clearer for so many more students w- with the technology that's available now and I don't I, I assume it's similar in science but I certainly get the sense that that's not as true in other subjects like English and MFL and all that kind of thing I think as you say I think maths really benefits um, from, yeah. from the technology side that's my perception anyway no, I, I agree also, I think I think with maths that teachers are struggling with, with all the time or, or a challenge is that in a group of 30 kids there are 30 people going at 30 different speeds and how do you cater for everyone um whereas now there's so much material around it's quite easy to access that if you are one of the brighter ones and you want to find out something more so you Mm. go on number file and you do find out more and you just put in google you know i want to know more about such and such a thing conic sections and then you can go down a rabbit hole so much more easily as before well, how would you've done that you've gone looked at the britannica in the school library and it would have been fusty not and too complicated and dry yes. um and likewise just say you're not that you're one of the top students and you need to do extra exercises likewise you can find those yeah that's true yeah, that is. Yeah, you're not as kind of dependent on the teacher providing stuff. Yeah, that's that's very true. Um, yeah, I, I'd say the other thing I, I'm interested just in in this whole kind of section on perception of maths. <laughs> your your guardian puzzle um, that comes out every fortnight, which I I absolutely love. I I genuinely oh, thank you. To it, and I was very happy when my Venn diagrams were in there. I I, t- <laughs> I, t- I tell everyone about that, Alex. That's like the first thing I say when I meet someone now. Um, would you? What's what's the audience who who reads those? Is it is it? And has, has that changed over? Did you say you've been doing it for four years? Did you get a sense that the audience changed? And do you get do you have an idea of the makeup of the kind of people who read and, and answer those at all? So, I. The puzzle is only online. It's not in the paper. And I can see all the metrics and some puzzles do better than others. And what tends to be the mark of whether a puzzle does well is whether I get a call out on the homepage. Right. So and whether or not I get a call out on the homepage is entirely down to the person who is the editor of the homepage at the time my puzzle is launched. And usually I, I send them, find out who it is and send them an email saying, hello, my puzzle is launched, <laughs> could you put it on the front? But th- that can be the difference. So a, a puzzle that doesn't get promoted on the front might get 10, 20,000 max. Right. And that will be people who are my kind of core followers. Right. So there's, there's probably that's core followers. But when I did one, you know, the clickbaity ones, are you smart enough to get into Oxbridge where yes, I used yes. an Oxford one? That got almost half a million views. Wow. So there, Jeez. almost everyone 
is just a normal Guardian reader who goes on the front yes. and they just say, what are the stories of the day? And because that's there, it's clickbait, it's kind of like a lifestyle piece, and they go on it. So I have the regulars, and I'd say there may be 20,000 of those um, from all over the world, and maybe the fickle nature of God. It's like <laughs> Guardian readers kind of know how I am, and they'll go there when they're given a clickbait yes. headline. <laughs> that's it. That's interesting. And, <laughs> and the other thing I was I was going to ask you about about the puzzles is, I, I, again, I can only speak from the experience of a teacher here, but I know if I make a mistake on something, my kids are onto it straight away, and I never hear the end of it. I can only imagine that that is significantly worse with when you kind of publish a puzzle in a newspaper and people spend time answering it. If there's any kind of mistake, I'm assuming they're onto you and giving you grief left, right, and centre, are they? Yeah, it's 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 terrible and. People rarely say, love that puzzle. <laughs> yeah, if you love that yeah. puzzle, you're like, oh, I like that puzzle. <laughs> yeah, if there is some, some tiny little typo, I will get, you know, typical Alex Bellos, can't spell <laughs> such and such. <laughs> so annoying. Yeah. I mean, I'm in two minds because on the one hand, so I write this column and even though it looks like it's a Guardian article, it's actually a blog because I used to be part of this thing called the Guardian Science Net, the Science Blog Network, which is now defunct. I'm the only one that still survives. And I, it's like I have the keys to the castle. I can get into the Guardian system. I'm probably the only journalist that can do this from their home. I write the story. No one checks it. I have no sub-editors wow. reading it. I find the, write the headline. I find the picture. I do all the captions. Um, if I need images... I do it on a bit of paper, take an iPhone shot, scan it, Jeez. send it to myself, load it up to the Guardian system. So I'm doing absolutely everything. Um, I try and get my wife to read the copy. I mean, she's not a mathematician. She's actually in publishing, so she's a good proof editor. Right. Um, but often I don't do that, and if the math is a bit wrong, she's not going to get that. Yeah. So I put it out there, and it's annoying if I've made a silly mistake. But sometimes... I have made a mistake, which is not a silly mistake. It's like I've made an assumption that I didn't realize yes, or I've yes. overstated it slightly incorrectly. And it's kind of brilliant having this stress test, which is showing it to 80,000 people. Yes. And then you can tell. Um, and for the first hour after the puzzle goes up, I'm literally sweating <laughs> and looking at it and seeing it. And if someone says... You know, but what about when yes. N is odd? Yes. I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe. Of course, N can't be odd. And then, <laughs> then I go in. I'm not really supposed to do this. I go in, I will change it, and I'll put something saying, you know, clarification. This yes. has been u- updated. But it's true. You know, writing about maths, and especially writing puzzles, is hard. Yeah, It's absolutely. hard. Just, ju- just because when it's done well, it looks effortless, doesn't mean it is effortless. Mm. And it's because there are so many, you know, you don't want to over-explain because yes, then it's yes. boring to read yes. so you need to choose exactly what you say and sometimes you know it's a column for the general public you know there are certain things that you don't want to this um where that's so obvious that are excluded that you don't want to say because if you did it you'd have a whole kind of yeah, so many caveats yes, it would be bo- boring to read so i've become quite kind of thick-skinned about it actually um and sometimes um i do things and this is this is like a bit risky is that i'll have a puzzle 
and I haven't properly solved it myself. But I'm relying on the fact that someone cleverer than me yeah. will actually send me the solution that I can use by five o'clock. And normally that's ha- normally that happens. That's really. I'll tell you what, because the reason I was thinking of this is um, I do another podcast series called Inside Exams where I interview um, examiners for, from AQA who, who write papers and so on and so forth. And as you'll probably know yourself in the age of social media, as soon as kids come out of a GCSE maths exam these days, they're straight on Twitter, slagging off questions left, right and centre, complaining about them and so on. And yeah. oft, often, you know, they're, they're making a mountain out of a molehill and there's nothing actually too wrong with the question. But there's been several high profile cases where questions that either have been ambiguous or there's been assumptions made by the writer that weren't necessarily be made by the kids and so on and so forth and like they go through loads of checks these questions when they're being written for these high stakes exams but it's only you know maybe best case what five or six pairs of eyes get to see them so it's no surprise is it like with your experience yeah. as a writer that when you're writing that volume of questions, it's very it's very easy for these, you know, whether you call them mistakes or whatever, to slip under the net. And particularly, you know, it's very public when you do it in for The Guardian. But also yeah. you could imagine if you were tasked with writing a GCSE maths exam, when the, the stakes attached to that are so high, it's, 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 it's almost impossible to, to get a kind of perfect paper full of perfect, unambiguous questions, if, if you see what I mean. You know, I, I totally agree. The skill of writing a good question is very different from the skill of reading a question and picking holes in it yes, or, or yes. kind of finding it, finding some mis- mistakes in it. And, you know, I love getting feedback and the people who give great feedback have that ability just to look at your question and think of all the kind of the ways <laughs> that it could be seen and say, you know, it would be clearer if you did that. But that that, that is a really special and undervalued skill and I guess a problem probably with the exams have is that the people who are setting questions all think in quite similar ways Mm -hmm. so when they're sharing around each other if there is some kind of mistake they'll all be blind to it because they're all thinking the same way so it's like you need to give it to someone who is maybe not quite as smart or not quite as on the same wavelength so they're not making the same assumptions as you you're absolutely absolutely right and they, again it, what you ideally need to do is is sample it with a load of you know a decent number of 15 and 16 year olds who are going to be sitting the paper but by definition you can't because it, obviously it's a, yes. a sealed exam <laughs> problem and, and so on and so forth fascinating um, it is. a couple of other things just on perception of maths alex when i was looking on your on your website i caught this line here it says i give talks to all ages professions and mathematical levels from primary school pupils to ceos tech specialists and financial investors oh um, yes i'm particularly interested in the ceos tech specialists and financial investors what what are they calling you in to talk about what kind of things are you well, so to i about? i am also really interested in that because every now and again maybe once a year right. <laughs> one of them calls up and it's the best paid work yes. that you do yeah. in terms of per, per minute and i don't get very many of those talks <laughs> but sometimes you do um so i've been asked to because what i do is sort of making numbers fun mm. and if you are in kind of finance or tech uh, sometimes accountancy you know all these kind of industries that use numbers you want someone you know you have your annual conference you'll you'll get together and you want someone to be the kind of after dinner speaker to kind of make numbers fun so what i do to them is not try and teach them any maths it's just try and 
have some fun with numbers. So I've got a talk that I've done with um, so on the survey to find my the world's favourite number, which is just quite entertaining and it makes you think about numbers in a different way. And I would do something like that. I also realised, so um, at one kind of investor conference that I was, the light entertainment, I gave the talk about favourite numbers and they were a bit, this time they were a bit like sitting around and going, yeah, I could tell it, it wasn't really resonating. Mm. And then I said, actually, I also got a puzzle column and here's a puzzle. And their eyes, you know, <laughs> just when they were, and what I realised is that this, these are people who are so competitive. Yeah. They're probably like unbearable to be around yes. because they're competitive in absolutely everything. They compare with each other, with, you want know, people richer and bigger <laughs> and it's all a, there's a kind of, competitiveness and when you put a puzzle they all want to be the first person to do it or they all want to be the person who can do it to show how clever they are and so now when i'm when i ask to go to um anything like that i will suggest can i do kind of quick fire puzzles to keep them going and often they quite like things like um probability i'm giving away all my secrets here (laughs) Um, (laughs) i'm giving uh probability problem um, problems because probability is quite easy to parlay that into a relevance mm. with say the stock market oh, and yes. also it's quite easy to catch them out and they're going to say something the wrong thing and it, because they're competitive you can say okay I've got, I've got this puzzle you're going to get it wrong sorry you're going to get it wrong and they'll be like we're going to get it wrong right. <laughs> and um, sometimes some of the, the also good thing about doing these slightly wealthier clients is that they have all the latest tech so often they have these little widgets or something on their phone that they can all vote on say a multi-choice question and in kind of almost in real time you can see how many people in the room got it right or wrong not the individuals but as as a group and so i can also you know i bet you as a group more people get it wrong than right and you know it's probability question like you're always i'm I'm always right and so that's that's quite fun and with um yeah this is me promoting myself on my website so i'm going to try and big myself up as much as possible and so with tech specialists what i sort of a a room of they are definitely tech specialists um was google like to get authors in to talk to their staff right and they get all sorts of authors um and there's you know hundreds or thousands of people work in google you know They've got this sort of amazing new building at King's Cross. And then, anyway, so I went in and I had this, it was, the room was packed. And I said, just before I gave my talk, I said, just out of interest, who here has got a maths or computer science A level? Because um, I was thinking, you know, it could have been all the PR team, it could be just yes, like yes. human resources. Yes. Um, I said, who here has got a um, maths A level or, or computer science A level? They all put their hands up. And I was like, oh, shit. Okay. And then I said, okay, keep your hands up if you also have a degree in math or computer science. Everyone's hands stayed up. Oh, wow. And I was like, oh, my God. And then I said, keep your hands up if you have a PhD in wow. math or computer science. Their hands all stayed up. Jeez. So even though I was going into Google and I didn't know who it was, it was actually the people who wanted to hear me talk were – 
you know the phd computer science people yes. who they kind of they, they love puzzles you know writing a program is essentially yes. solving a puzzle and even though the puzzles that i showed them were kind of classic puzzles that i would also show you know gcse audience i would do it slightly differently but essentially it's the kind of the same material mm. none of them said do you know what that was too simple oh, because if, if, when when you're thinking computer science if you've never thought about I know that a river crossing problem yes. <laughs> for 20 years, it's actually really entertaining and really quite fun. And you want to be able to do it in your head straight away. And just talking about puzzles, it's just like telling jokes. It's just like telling jokes and it's entertaining for all ages. So the question is, what would you tell these tech specialists about? I tell them what I talk to the GCSE kids about because yeah. actually every, every, everyone, everyone enjoys that material. That's interesting. That's fascinating. I'm wondering, how I, I'm wondering if you can get me one of these gigs, Alex. That's one of the things that's running through my head here. Can you get me into Google at any stage? Well, Google, Google I'm sure um, they pay nothing. Oh, one of the world's it. richest, one of the world's richest companies, but they have this thing because it's, they think that they're doing you a favour ah, because it's called yes. a Google Talk and yes. they'll video it and they'll put it on their. And it's really annoying, and each time I'm like, I don't want to do it because they should pay, because, you know, how am I going to pay the bills is how I earn my money? And then you think, oh, it's quite fun just going to Google because, yeah. you know, they've got amazing restaurants, it's all for free, and yes. you just get to look, look, look at the masters of the universe. But, yes, it, it is annoying. But Never whether mind. you want to include this bit in your cut or not, of course, <laughs> of course. I could recommend that you go give a talk at Google without going to that saying. Super. Fantastic. Um, fantastic. Um, final question on this section, Alex. And this comes with the usual disclaimer that, I mean, I, I've been lucky enough to hear you talk a couple of times now, and I, I know whenever you talk to teachers, you almost you always make it very clear you're not a teacher and you, it's not your role to give advice and so on and so forth. But with those disclaimers in mind, um, do you have any thoughts at all if, if – as teachers listen to this we've got kids in our class who just say they hate maths and whether that's coming through their parents or whether that's just their own thoughts having struggled with maths over the years have you any thoughts on that whether it's advice or just general kind of musings on on how best to get kids who tell you that they really don't like the subject to, to buy back into it a little bit more Firstly, I can't believe you've been to see me and you haven't come on and said hello. I, you always mobbed at the end, Alex. This is, this is, this is the problem. <laughs> can't get past security. This is the issue. <laughs> um, so it's really hard and it has to be done on a case-by-case case basis. Mm. What is the reason why that child like, doesn't like maths? If they're dyscalculic and they have a problem with numbers, then... It might be the case that they're really interested in or they, they react well to pictures and sort of geometrical things. Yes. I think that math is full of wow and you need to try and find a way of getting that wow and a good way of trying to get that wow is by some kind of puzzle. And I think the best puzzle to give a um, math-phobe is a puzzle that they have to work out themselves in their own time and if they get it wrong or make a mistake they realize themselves mm. and you're not saying that's wrong because no one likes being said that's wrong and that's what i think the strength of those japanese grid logic puzzles are something like sudoku but i think sudoku is it's a bit boring and tried and tested mm. there are some other ones that you can you give a child a simple ken-ken, say. I think ken-ken is a brilliant 
is a brilliant one. One that's really, really simple. And Can you just describe Ken Ken for listeners who aren't familiar with it? So the Ken Ken, it looks a bit like a um, Sudoku in that it's a grid. Usually it's not nine by nine. That would be like a really massive one. You, you, can, you can have them say four by four, the simplest one. And there are different regions that are marked. And in each region, there is a number in the top corner. And you need to make that number using the digits in that reason, region. So, for example... Um, actually, I should say that if it's four by four, it's a Latin square. So that would mean the numbers involved are one, two, three and four. And every line and every row, so every column and every row has a one, a two, a three and a four. Like nice. the Sudoku form. Yes. So you could have a region. The region could have just one square in it. But that would mean the corner, the number, if it was one square and it said one, that would know that the number in that square would be one. Yep. Um, if the region was two. And the number in the corner was two. Well, that could be two times one. So it would be a two and a one. Or it could be three minus one. So you've got to deduce what digits fit in that region. And the simple ones are very, very simple. But it's so satisfying the way it pieces together. And with these Japanese puzzles, the levels are so wonderfully done that you can give a set of, say, 10 of them where anyone you give them to will be able to do the first. And then the second one is not that more difficult. It's maybe using something that you learned doing the first one. And then slowly you, you start doing them and you do them in your own time. You're really motivated to do it because you're, you've done the first one. It's quite easy. So you think you can do it. You're, you're, you're kind of hooked. But also you know what the answer has to be because – if it doesn't fit, yes. you made a mistake. Yes. And so you realize that you made a mistake. And then you have to sort of find where you made that mistake. And actually, what is teaching is kind of logical thought, but it's also teaching self-confidence and life skills that it's fine to make a mistake. Mm. But what you need to do is not run away from that mistake. It's like, okay, I have made a mistake. Where did I go wrong? One step back, two step backs. So I think that those puzzles are really, really appealing and sort of teach life skills by stealth. Um, and yeah, that one of the reasons why they are appealing is you get that s- sort of serotonin kind of buzz each time, like a, like a micro buzz each time you fill in a square. Yes. So yes. you are, everyone is achieving something. So it's not that here's a problem, you're doing it and you get the wrong answer. Well, you've got absolutely nothing from that. You feel a bit stupid. Then you might be told the answer. You think, oh, that's interesting. Mm. But... I'm a bit rubbish, whereas this is a way of kind of building up confidence. So I'm a really big fan of those types of puzzles. Also, what I quite like, um, asking questions, kind of cultural questions about maths, which are, you know, why are the 10 numbers in our number system? You know, well, it's because we've got, 10 fingers well could we have another system with another you know another base um or did you know that there are actually some other cultures that do have other bases and people start thinking really no they don't surely once you start questioning the really kind of the basic things and, and and so talking about kind of the culture i think is i think is kind of interesting you know 
what the world was like without a zero. There are these things that people assume uh, has always been around, but actually are quite recent inventions. I think I, th- I think that's quite fun. I quite like doing that. That's really, really interesting. That yeah, I, I completely with with your latter points. I completely agree there about the the interesting stuff and the the historical background. And um, one thing I'd, I'd not thought about till you mentioned it there about the. Um, about about puzzles and the fact that it's important that a child knows themselves whether or not they're they're right or wrong. That that's a really important point. That because because often I'll come in with interesting puzzles and to give the kids chance to think about overnight, and they'll come in the next day, and there's lots of different answers going around, and we can have an interesting discussion about that. But yeah, it would be so much more powerful if the the children themselves knew if they'd stumbled upon the right answer or knew if they'd got the right answer through some some mechanism. And again, that's quite difficult in in kind of lots of types of puzzles but yeah in ken ken and the other ones like that you know if you've got it right that that yeah ab- absolutely that that's that's a point i've not considered before i, I, I really like that one that's that's not oh, good <laughs> <laughs> right alex i, I want to talk i want to talk about um writing about math now we've, we've already spoken yeah. a, a fair bit about this already about um what kind of drives you to to write about math we, we've kind of covered that um, a little bit but again i just wondered if you'd I don't know, maybe you kind of want to summarise why you think it's important to, to write about this subject. Is it as simple as the, the fact that you like it and you don't think enough other people like it, or is it a bit more complicated than that? What, why choose maths as a subject to write about? So I feel passionate about maths. I find that it's interesting and important, and I've discovered there's a market for it, which is also that, that motive. It's a, it's, a, it's a nice way to earn a living, so to speak. But I also think that you know, the first book that I wrote was about Brazilian football. But the way that came about, I was living in Brazil um, and a publisher came to me and said, do you want to write a book on Brazilian football? And I said, no, why would I want to write about Brazilian football? I'm not a sports reporter. You know, I like football, but you haven't asked a sports reporter. Um, they know, you know, I don't know, you know, the size of, you know, Pele's foot size or who won the FA Cup in 1972. Mm. I'm just not that sort of, not not interested. Um, and then the publisher said, but no, that's why to write this book, write the book of Brazilian football, because if it was someone who's obsessed with football, it would just be for the football obsessives. Um, and then I began to think about it and I thought, actually, I've been wanting to write about Brazil. I've been wanting to write about the, the, the political situation there, about its musical history, about its racial breakdown, about the kind of indigenous, um, uh, um, you know, uh, native um, uh, South Americans. I'd been wanting to talk about the growth of, sort of Brazil in the 1950s, etc. And I thought football brings all these things together. So actually my book was using football to write about those things. And once you start writing a book, you think there's no point me writing a book that someone else would be able to write better than me because they should write it. You can only write the book that only you can write. Yes. So I thought, well, what is the book that I want to write? And I thought, well, that's, I, I, I sort of realized that actually the book that I wanted to write about Brazil was all kind of about identity about what it is to be Brazilian. And that was because I guess I was a sort of fish out of water. I wasn't Brazilian. What was I? And so that was a book um, written from my perspective of where I was then. And then writing about maths, I'm writing the book that I feel that only I could write yeah. because I can't write like Marcus de Sorto. I'm not professor of maths. I don't, I'm, 
he's so much better at math than I am. Um, so I couldn't try and write a book which is trying to explain complicated math that I don't like totally understand mm. because he should write that book and he does and he writes great books. Um, likewise, what, what, it, what are my strengths? And I think I am unique or I was sort of in my generation of being someone who has spent time on Fleet Street with a math degree. Now it's changing and you can do, um, you know, science communication degrees. And there are a whole bunch of people who work for newspapers who actually studied math and physics and things like that. But when I was doing it, I was in newspapers for, you know, 50, 20 years and never once met someone who knew anything about math at all. So what I felt my unique position was, was that I'm the... I know how to write journalism. I know how to write this kind of long-form non-fiction, kind of narrative non-fiction. But I also have a passion for and understand to a certain level, to say degree level, mathematics. And this is a unique combination. So I should write the book that the person who has those skills yes. can do. And I feel that that's what I try and do, so, which is why when I write my puzzle books, anyone, not anyone, there are lots of other math writers that come out with perfectly good puzzle books. There's a guy called Peter Winkler, who probably is probably the best puzzle guy in the world at the moment. He's like an amazing, amazing maths professor. He's at Dartmouth in America. And he's written a few book, puzzle books. And they're brilliant. But you can tell that he is a kind of PhD mathematician, you know, maths professor. They are kind of concise. There's not that much background. Question, answer, mm. amazingly well put further reading then it gets quite complicated quite quickly you know, for what they are they're brilliant but they're totally him yes um and i couldn't write that book even though i look at it sort of in awe what i know i can do is i know i can find 200 puzzles work out a way that they're all linked either them thematically or chronologically or geographically or intellectually in some way and take the reader on a kind of a journey that means that you can read my books even if you can't do any of the puzzles yes. and that's so, like a kind of friendly guide and having written what seven odd, odd math books a bit like that i've kind of i thought i'm in my stride <laughs> and i enjoy it and i know i can do it and no one else writes quite like that so for example um and i think that my journalistic training kind of tells so in all my books I'm always calling people up, interviewing them, asking them, what does this mean? What does that mean? You know, tell me what you know, <laughs> what you were listening to at the time, you know, just to get the kind of color in the background. Whereas, you know, you have other really good writers, you know, say two class examples of two really good books that have come out the last year, Matt Parker's Humble Pie mm -hmm. and Hannah Fry's, um, Hello World. Yeah. I couldn't have written. I couldn't have written either of those books. Um, I couldn't have written Hannah's book. That's because I'm not a um, sort of data scientist academic who actually works in that area. Who you know, written it in the way that she wrote it. I would have written it in a to totally different way. And likewise with Matt, who his background is, is kind of comedy and it kind of goes with his comedy show. And there are a lot more kind of gags and setups and stories and the whole the whole positioning is I'm the funny math guy. <laughs>
Whereas I'm not, I mean, I, I think there is humour in mine, but I think I like to, yeah. I, I'm, I'm the guy the journey and you're going to read it like a story. I'm kind of, the, I'm the storytelling guy yeah. is, is how I, I like to feel that, that, that that's what I'm contributing. And the shelf on the book shelf that says maths now in bookstores and in libraries, which had, you know, Simon Singh, and that was basically about it <laughs> yeah. 10 years ago, now is crammed full of really interesting, diverse books. And we all have our kind of different selling points. And the best books are the ones that are faithful to like, who is the author and why are they writing it? And you know, why me? Well, I'm writing it because I think I can tell the story with it in a way that will make you enjoy it. And why now? Because <laughs> there's, a, there's, there's a market for it. Yeah. And you do kind of respond. I think, you know, the title of my new book, So You Think You've Got Problems. A lot of that is um, we're in a world that makes no sense. Mm. Every, all these stuff that's happening. So puzzles are really of the moment. There is a kind of <laughs> boom in these puzzle books because I think people like the comfort of the fact that here's a question that actually has an answer. Yeah. You know, so much Brexit. What's the answer? It's mess. It's a mess. <laughs> With my puzzles, it has an actual answer. So I think that where we're, you know, I think that you, you kind of can't take the book out of the context. I, I guess that's sort of part of the context and how I see my role in it. Well, that's fascinating that. And um, again, as, as someone who's uh, well, written what, one maths book anyway and attempting to write a second at the moment, I'm fascinated by the writing process. Uh, and I like reading uh, kind of writing advice books. I'm a bit obsessed with these at the moment. And I'm kind of regretting starting because once you <laughs> kind of go down the rabbit hole, you, you're trying to take all the advice. But one, one piece of advice that, that seems to be fairly consistent, and I'm wondering your take on this, Alex, is um, it seems to be don't try and kind of write to a general audience have kind of a specific and, and often they, they recommend kind of writing for one person essentially one person who you think this is the kind of person who I'm writing for who I think will really enjoy this book and if you kind of make it that focused and that specific that's when you don't end up making compromises and you're kind of true to yourself and, and what it becomes a much more kind of focused book do you, do you buy into that or do you do you have a kind of specific audience in mind or are you writing more generally what's your target audience or your intended audience so I, I agree and I don't agree. So the bit that I agree is that when I'm writing, if there's a bit that's complicated, I have not one person who I'm thinking about. I have two people. I have someone who is a kind of imaginary friend who is like a bit like me, kind of understands it, would understand it. And I have a friend of mine um, who has never studied maths and I imagine I'm sitting at a bar and I'm just like telling t telling them the story and I need to get it so that the one who doesn't understand math is going to be interested might not understand right. it but is enough to be interested and the one who understands the math isn't going to be totally bored so it's true I do imagine two people and sometimes when I'm struggling well how can I phrase that Okay, I do have that kind of thought experiment. I'm in a bar. What's the top line? If I was yes, just, and sometimes, yes. sometimes I actually vocalise it because it's quite hard staring at a screen and thinking. Um, and you know, my wife 
probably gets a bit annoyed but sometimes i'm like can i just can i just say these things to you <laughs> yeah, and you yeah. just say anything back because just it's, it's quite helpful even if you're not paying attention to what i'm saying just by vocalizing it, or can i can i talk to you about what i'm what i was thinking and it's really sometimes when you actually say something um it crystallizes in your head mm. so yes i do think about individual people when i'm trying to express thoughts but as a whole I, I I do write for a general audience, I think, because what, what I want to do is that I want to make the general person interested. So I think I've got to say something that you, whoever walks through that door, I could sit down and I could tell them this story and they're going to be interested. Yeah. So and that person can be anyone i guess between the those two imaginary people so i do think about focusing on one person but as a whole i'm hoping that there's got to be like a broad swathe i mean i think that it might be a bit different from if you're writing a book which is for teachers mm. because then you've got the demographics sort of already quite clear yes. with what they know, what they're going to be looking for. I, th- I think another thing actually is signposting. And that's something that you need to do a lot when you're writing about maths and you need to do in a way that's subtle enough not to be totally obvious. Signposting is, hi, you're reading a book and I'm going to tell you this and then I'm going to tell you that and then I'm going to tell you that. Right. Okay. Now, now we've done the intro. Now I'm going to start telling you that. Yes. So you need to do a lot of signposting just so people have got a rail to hold on. Yes. But you've got to do it not too much that people just think, oh, my God, this is like one of those terrible reality shows where yeah. the people are always saying they're about to do something or they've just done it and et cetera, yes. et cetera. That's interesting. Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. <laughs> um, I want to ask you before we start diving into some stories from from some ebooks, Alex. Um, you met, you've kind of mentioned a, a fair few well-known maths books um, already that that you've perhaps read or maybe even been influenced by. I'm going to be harsh here. I'm going to pretend uh, kind of my dream is to to host Desert Island Discs one day, right? So as a, as a, <laughs> as a, a vain attempt to, to kind of emulate that a little bit, if you could just choose, and I'm going to let's maybe limit you to three. I'm going to say three. Maths. Three, three maths books that you could take with you onto this desert island. Um, do you have three in mind that, that really stand out for you as being either particularly enjoyable or influential for you that, that you've read in the past? Yes, definitely. So I would say that top of the list of math writers who I think are amazing and um, I would, if you haven't read these, order on Amazon and read them, is by Apost- the author is Apostolos Doxiadis, and he was a Greek guy, and he wrote Uncle Petros and the Goldback Conjecture, which is about the Goldback Conjecture, and it's fiction, but it's actually kind of the best non-fiction book about the Goldback Conjecture, which is a very simple conjecture about prime numbers that is still unsolved. Um, it was conjectured, and people assume it's true, but no one's proved it. And he manages to explain the maths but also turn it into a, just like a wonderful, magical story. I think that's absolutely brilliant. And also he did a graphic novel about Bertrand Russell called Logic Comics. And Logic <laughs> Comics, is, the worst thing about it, well, the only bad thing about it is the name. I think Logic Comics is not a particularly memorable name. It is, you know, I did a degree in math and philosophy um, and a module on sort of Russell and the philosophy of maths. 
this tells you everything I did in a university term <laughs> in 200 pages of a graphic novel. But you learn so much more than a graphic novel. It's so brilliantly, brilliantly done. I don't know if you, you, you've read it. No, I think Logic I Comics all, no. is absolutely fantastic. I think that's a, a brilliant book. And another book that I'm going to mention, just because I think it's wonderful and listeners will enjoy it, but has really done nothing, is a book called Genius at Play, which is a biography of John Conway, who's a British mathematician oh, yes. who's in his 80s now. And he's a very playful, he's the one who he does not so called the maths of games. Yes, yes. Um, and he's someone who he likes to likes to have fun. He he invented the game of life. That's probably yes, the most famous that's thing. Right. That's right. And he, even though he's a bit embarrassed by that because, you know, he... he he thinks he's done a lot more important things than that. And that's what everyone wants to know about. But it's written by Siobhan Roberts, who is, you know, never studied maths, is just a great sort of biographer. And it's charming and funny and fascinating. And you really get a sense of Conway and thereby what it is to be inside of the brain of a kind of genius mathematician. I think it's really, it's a, it's a really fantastically written wow. book. And it's really, really enjoyable. And it didn't do that well when it came out, which is a shame. Jeez, and just, just for the benefit of listeners, um, just say those three to us one more time. It's the titles and the authors of those. Okay. Um, Uncle Petros and the Goldback Conjecture by Apostolos Doxiadis. Logic Apostolos Doxiadis. And Genius at Play by Siobhan Roberts. Fantastic. So if you've not read out any of those, like they're going to my Christmas list, those, Alex. They sound absolutely so what, 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 fantastic. What, What's interesting, it's actually the easiest question for me because I've got a shelf in my study, which is where I am now, with all my favourite maths books. So there's about nice. 20 of them there. So I was, nice. just, I was just looking at them, and those are the ones that I felt were calling me. Super. Fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic. Lovely answer. Right, well, let, let's turn to some, some of your books. Now, before we talk about your, your new one, um, I just, just want to just give you an opportunity for, for any listeners who haven't read some of your previous books. Perhaps if you could pick out one kind of favorite story or puzzle or anecdote just to give people a sense of the kind of thing that are in there so if we start with perhaps the one you're most well known for and alex alex's adventures in numberland what would you what would you kind of tell people to hook them in about that particular book so there's a new story or an anecdote almost in every page um because i was i probably put i should have written two books there <laughs> but um what the book starts off with me speaking to a linguist who spends a lot of the year living in the Amazon doing research, psychology research on this uh, indigenous community, kind of tribe, whatever, um, that don't have proper numbers. They have numbers kind of up to five, but maybe it's only up to four because they're not sure if what they use for five is a proper number. And so this, I kind of got totally sucked into the world of the cognition of number, how, what it is, is about humans and animals and how we understand number and numerosity. Mm. And what, so the, the major kind of take home point is that even though we have this number system, which is, is yeah, 
So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. The difference between zero and one and one and two yes. is the same. That we have this kind of animal sort of logarithmic understanding of the world, which quite often overrules our linear sense of understanding of the world. And something as basic as this is a reason why lots of people kind of struggle with maths because numbers seem so simple, but actually they're already slightly kind of breaking with our intuitive sense about how you know our environment works. And so that to me was I never knew any of that stuff. Yes. And realizing that you can you know, it touches on maths, but also I guess it just touches on education because it's about why we find these things things difficult and we need to work out why we find it difficult so we can work out what to teach and how to make people understand the complicated things in an easy way. Um, so I guess think about the book, I think about the start and I think that that kind of I sort of plunging people in, in the sense that the book is about adventures is about people who have adventures with mathematics it's about people who go into the jungle to um investigate understanding of numbers it's uh, about you know i went to reno in um nevada to meet the person who programs almost all the world's slot machines so he's the guy who does the odds in all the world's slot machines and so You've got the adventures of I'm having meeting people, it's their own intellectual adventures, and then you have the epic adventure of mathematics from, you know, the Babylonians, really, to where we are now. Yeah, it's 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 a brilliant book, and um, again, just to to kind of match you in terms of of, of maths books. Now, as we know, and I'll say in the intro, we've had a few technical difficulties with the recording, so I'm currently sat in uh, the spare bedroom <laughs> at my mother and father-in-law's house. But normally, I record these in my um, office where I've got all my books behind me. And again, pride of place uh, next to um, Hannah Fry's. Uh, Hannah was a, a guest on, on on the show a while back. Um, is is a couple of your books actually, and both um, Alex Adventure in Numberland and, and Through the Looking Glass. And they're, yeah, they're absolutely fantastic books, Alex. And I oh, wonder, thank you. I wonder if we if we just turn to through the Looking Glass just briefly. Um, yeah. And just two things about that. Again, I'd like you to share um, an anecdote or a story from that. But also, um, and again, this is just a purely selfish question. As somebody who's, as I say, trying to write their second book at the moment, I'm feeling this pressure of the kind of difficult second album and the the kind of fail the, the sequel that's never going to kind of live up to the original. Did you feel pressure that kind of particularly because it's it's called it starts with the same name it starts with alex people are gonna and people love the first book so much was the pressure with this one did, did was it as yeah huge, to, huge pressure was it as huge, enjoyable huge to write as the first yeah how did, how did you cope with that no it wasn't as enjoyable to write i think the first one was like a thrill that yes. i'd been given money to write <laughs> about this subject and research it and Essentially, we do the first one. You do all the low-hanging fruit. <laughs> yeah. So you've done that, <laughs> yes. and then you're like, "Oh my God, it's going to be more difficult," because the su- the subjects in Through the Looking Glass are a little bit more advanced. So it's even harder to try and make them accessible. And then you do it. You think, "Oh my God, maybe I'm never going to make the exponential constant interesting <laughs> to someone who's not actually really interested in maths." Um, and so it was a struggle, uh, and it took me actually longer to write than the first one. And at the time, I can remember I came to a point in it where I was like, I can't do this, mm. I can't do this. Mm. I got stuck in one of the chapters, 
uh, the chapter on um, kind of universal statistical laws, Benford's law and Zipf's law and things like that. And I was just writing the same kind of page again and again and again and sort of just like like different punctuation and making absolutely no progress and then you, you do that thing you think i've been spending so long doing this it's gonna make it because otherwise all that time would be yes would yes. be worthwhile but actually you've got to come to a point when you think do you know what maybe that entire month was a waste of time mm. but i've just got to realize that i needed to get through it so yes. it kind of wasn't a waste of time but yeah it, it the difficult circle to have is really really difficult because you want to make something which is better than the first yep but also kind of like the first because yes. the first one did well it's got to be like the first one <laughs> yeah, but how yeah. can you be like it but different yes yes it's it's really hard it's it's it, it is it is really hard I'm glad, um, glad, glad you struggled too, Alex. Yeah. That makes me feel it. My sympathies, my sympathies. <laughs> well, t- tell us a quick story then from uh, from through the looking glass. Something to hook people into that that book. So, glass. Um, I was talking about um, these universal statistical laws. One of them, which is Benford's law. Benford's law, which is the fact that if you look in most data, the number one appears as a first digit yes i think it's 37 percent of the time number two appears like 16.5 percent of the time it's this amazing um you know it's amazing that it happens and it really you really can see it and i was thinking how can i try and get this the benford's law into um make it interesting to to, to really an interesting way then i found out about this kind of private detective forensic you know fraud busting detective in um portland in america um so i was on a a trip to america to interview a few people and i went and interviewed him and that was kind of exciting because he's there talking about how math made him catch this big fraudster and because he's american He's like tells me that he's got like a gun in the room and like locks, <laughs> lo- lo- locks in the indoors or on the outside, and it was all it was all kind of quite quite exciting and, and quite fun. And in in the end, you know, what a great way to tell a story because you're not saying here's this interesting idea for mass that could be used to you know catch a criminal. You're actually saying this is the criminal, this is what he did, and this is how he got caught. Yes. <laughs> The good, good value Americans to buy some <laughs> stories. Yes, yeah. super, super. And then um, one book of yours, I must confess, confess, I've not read Alex, but I, I saw when I was researching for this conversation, is Football School. Um, can you just give us a bit of a oh, sense? Yeah. yeah, what, what, what's that about? So, um, Football School is a book series that is aimed at Key Stage Two, and it uses football to open up the curriculum and I had the idea because you know, I, I work from home and there's a mate of mine called Ben who lives quite near where we are, where I live and he also walks, works from home and he's a sports journalist. Obviously I've written about football in the past and that's kind of the, through those circles I know him and we used to go for lunch you know, every few weeks and chat about projects we could do together. And then we thought, well, wouldn't it be fun to sort of link his skills and being a football writer and my skills as being a kind of science writer to do something about, you know, 
science and football we weren't too sure and then we started to work together and we realized well this is what we're going to do we're going to, to, to write a book that one of the things that i was quite aware of at school is that we have subjects that you know geography is this history is that math is that physics is that because when you actually get into the wide world it's not that there are subjects it's like you have the world mm-hmm. and everything to everything else and i've also been interested in you know when i write about maths i always love to get talk about religion and psychology and philosophy and history and music and architecture and all those things and i thought that with football actually you can use that as a way to write about the world so we came up with this idea and football school is a kind of fictitious school where every lesson is about football and each of the there are four main football school books season one two three and four and each of them we have a bunch of lessons say geography history maths chemistry biology and it's, it's heavily illustrated we've got a fantastic cartoonist and we would say so in the biology chapter it's all about footballers and poo because it's what kids at key stage two are really interested in and what i did there is um why do footballers never need to go in the middle of a game okay this is what kids are interested in and they don't need to go because they need to eat the right food at the right time so it's just a great segue into talking about the digestive system and also about nutrition and when you're writing for key stage two you can call up so i called up the club doctor of a um top uh five premiership club and said can i just interview you about poo and what, what what your players eat and when they go to the toilet and how the whole kind of bathroom etiquette yeah. is in a football club and he was you know you, if i said i'm writing this for the guardian they'd say i'm not talking to you but i'm writing this for kids and you get absolutely everything so it's fantastic so we've got you know the physics lesson is all about how to play football on mars so you're learning about gravity um i went to opta so Opta, who do all the football stats. Yes. Like, I was amazed that Opta is, they don't use computers to measure all those stats. They have each Premiership game, Premier League game, has two guys, usually always guys, I think actually always guys, <laughs> who have these big kind of two or three screens in front of them, and they're watching the game, and each time a player has it, they click a button, each time wow. they kick it this, kick it that. So they are mapping the game to get all the data and then they use that data to um you know obviously to, su- to supply it to yes. all the clubs and to, to newspapers so that was the math le- one of the math lessons was like how you get data and how you can use data by you know proper you know, so we went to this place and spoke to this guy and this is what did. but we've also got chapters on you know music where do football chants come from blah, blah, blah. so we've got loads and loads of wow it's opening the curriculum for that level through football and that takes quite a lot of time so i'd say probably 50 percent of my time i'm writing football school because there have now been seven football school books and i also go to well me and ben because we do it together and spike who's the cartoonist we go to schools and we've we've played at anfield we um at world book day last year and the year before we were at anfield with um you know, primary schools linked to Liverpool, 
has an amazing um, <clears throat> foundation and is, you know, famous. Everyone knows that Liverpool is very close to the Liverpool community. Mm. So we were involved with that, which was good fun. Wow. That's football school. I'm going to check that out. <laughs> that is absolutely fantastic. Super. Well, um, let's turn our attention for the final kind of section of, the, of this talk to your, your current book, which I was lucky enough to, yeah. to be sent a copy of. So you think you've got problems. Um, again, it's a, it's, a, it's a superb book, Alex. And why, I get, you've alluded to this a little bit, but, but why... I guess what, what? Why write another puzzle book? And again, the, if I was playing devil's advocate here, do, does the world need another puzzle book? What? What? What made you think? Yeah, I, I'm going to write one, and I'm going to going to frame it like this. So the first puzzle book came out, Heads of My Problems, three years ago, and the reason why it happened was that I'd started. In fact, I should probably rephrase all of this. <laughs> I was writing math books, and then I started writing a math column at the Guardian. And one of the columns was about a puzzle. It was the Cheryl's birthday oh, yes. puzzle. Oh yes, yes. That, that went viral. That didn't that was a big one. That one. It went big. That that was five million people. It was one of the top ten stories of the Guardian wow. that year, and it was a year when loads of things happened. So as a result of that, I said to the Guardian, puzzles are where it's at. They can go viral. They're interesting. I'd like a puzzle column. So they gave me this kind of puzzle blog thing, which now four and a half years ago. And after having done it for about a year, uh, the ratings are always quite good. The, the, the stats are quite good. The Guardian had done a deal with Faber and Faber were looking at things in the Guardian that they wanted to turn into books. And an obvious one was the puzzle column. Yes. So they came to me saying, do you want to do a puzzle book? Nice. And I was and I was like, mm, I'm not sure. I just want to write puzzles. And then I thought about it and said, do you know what? I want to tell the story. I want to tell the history of puzzles. Yes. So I thought, okay, I will do this. And only about 10% of the puzzles that are in the book have used in the column because there are things that work on paper that don't work uh, online and, and vice versa. So essentially the first puzzle book was me trying to – me learning all about puzzles and telling the story of puzzles, a kind of parallel history of mathematics through – these fun puzzles where you talk about the different mathematicians are involved, but also lots of kind of clever amateurs are involved and these brilliant characters like Henry Dudney. Uh, and then I did that and then I was like, okay, enough puzzles. I can still do one every two weeks, but I didn't need to do another puzzle book. And then I just started to get really fascinated by the Japanese puzzles. Mm. And I thought, you know what? They're so amazing and they can be so useful and no one has done anything more than just these kind of computer-generated, regurgitated, slightly kind of trashy Sudoku books, which are fine, but are, you know, using just lots of paper to yes. do the same old thing. Why, let's try and do this in an interesting way. So I went to Japan and I did what I thought was a lovely book and actually of the people who actually read it, it's devoted fans, <laughs> but um, didn't really sell at all because once you get into these puzzles they're just amazing and they're completely addictive and then that was two years ago so i didn't do a puzzle book last year and i was thinking if there is a reason i you know i need a reason to a book i can't just do one just to sort of churn it out because i think readers are very sensitive to something that they think is being kind of just like cynically pushed mm -hmm. at them yes, yes so i needed to think of a reason and it was a little bit this idea that we live in kind of puzzling times that actually the, there's, there's something comforting in puzzles. But also I was thinking, 
what sort of puzzles do I want to do? And I realized that lots of puzzles, what's interesting about them is they have surprising answers. Mm. And it's a sort of element of surprise. And often they're puzzles that you're never going to solve yourself, but stating them in a, as a puzzle is a good way of really isolating and building up for that kind of wow moment. And so the puzzles that I have chosen for this book, a lot are about, about, about surprise and about that, that wow. And because they're surprising, which makes you challenge your assumptions mm. about things and hopefully means that when something surprising happens in the real world, you're actually slightly better primed. So there are five chapters in it, or five different areas. And the final chapter, which is almost kind of the heart of the book, even though it's right at the end, is all about probability. And why probability is very difficult and very counterintuitive. Yes. People find it quite hard to do with, with the randomness. And as a sort of challenge, I wanted to almost tell, if not the history, but kind of summarize basic probability done through the history of probability puzzles, because there have been some really interesting probability puzzles. And a good thing about a probability puzzle is that usually they're incredibly simple to state. Yes. Because yeah. it's just about, you know, people being born on a certain day or rolling a dice or choosing a door or mm. something like that. So that was because I, I thought there was a yeah, what I wanted to do was it's not a self-help guide, but it's something which is kind of self-evidently useful. You know, puzzles are entertaining, they're fun, but also they're quite useful. And I feel that this book is, if you are to do the puzzles or think about them and then read the discussion at the back and the type of book that I do, I think I mentioned before this, 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 this podcast Often the discussion of the answers is what's interesting. Yes. So you can't have a puzzle book, which is a bunch of puzzles, yes. and then in a bunch of, like, you know, the, the answer is 25. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. That's, that's just, like, no fun. <laughs> You've got to kind of talk about the answer and about did you get it, did you not get it, what was difficult yes. about it, what it touches into, here's some further reading. And so that's sort of what I, what I wanted to do. I wanted to use the the style of puzzle book that I had done with Cancel My Problems, which is more discursive, uh, talk about the answers a lot more, but focus on puzzles that have a real element of surprise, puzzles that you just kind of can't quite believe the answer. Fantastic. And again, it's an obvious question, Alex, but where do you get your puzzles from? And uh, I've often wondered, is there some kind of like copyright issue or like ownership issue over puzzles? How on earth do you trace the original source of, of, of these puzzles? A brilliant question, and it's really difficult. So, from people send them in, I've got dozens and dozens of puzzle books. Also, the internet is awash with sites on puzzles, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, I get them from lots of different places, and rarely do I come up with an original puzzle myself, but puzzles are like kind of it's a folk poetry they get sort of invented and reinvented reinvented and polished and like changed for the age and what i see my skill is of finding one that is kind of relevant and sort of reshaping it repolishing it and presenting it 
in combination with other puzzles that makes it and, and an interesting kind of contemporary discussion. Um, that's where I get them from. Do you, I believe I the copyright issue. Yes. I believe that there is no copyright. I believe that you can't co- you can't copyright an idea. Mm. You can't copyright like the result. And a puzzle is essentially a mathematical result. So what you can copyright is the words of a puzzle. Right. But you can't actually copyright the puzzle. So I don't want to get done for plagiarism. <laughs> so if I ever bought take a, all the puzzles that I do, I say where I got them from. And I always rewrite them in my own words. Right. So they're always in my own words. Yes. Even because I don't want to say this comes from another book and it's verbatim because then yes. that is copying. But almost all the books that you get them from, they've copied them from somewhere yes. else. That's interesting. And it be, you mentioned, well, I interviewed Rob Easterway um, a couple of episodes ago, and uh, he's he's obviously massively into puzzles as well. And he described himself as a, a puzzle curator. Um, and would, would you, are you, are you the same or would you consider yourself yeah, an author? Yeah. But you yeah, say, you, you, you say I you've think written, I'm a curator. But you've, you've done a few originals of your own, have you as well? Yes. Well, so for example, in the new book, a puzzle that I guess I wrote this puzzle. Are you still there? Yes. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, so wait, silence and there's a bit of click. Yeah. So in the new book, here's an example of what could be an original puzzle. <laughs> right. Um, I'm not sure whether it, it, um, I thought it would be fun to go back to Fibonacci's problem about rabbits. But to you know, the the the, the Fibonacci numbers, you know, one, one, two, three, five, then you know, mm. add two consecutive terms and you get the next one, comes from Fibonacci's famous puzzle about the breeding, uh, yes. reproductive behaviour of rabbits from 800 years ago. And I thought there's so much been written about this, but no one has actually asked the question: Was he right about the rabbits? He was right about the maths. Was he right about the rabbits? So I did a new puzzle, which is Fibonacci with um, scientific accuracy. Because with Fibonacci, um, every month, a rabbit pair gives birth to another rabbit pair. And every six months, no, no, and it takes one month for a rabbit to become fertile. Yes. And I just I just checked this, whether this is true. It is not true. It takes six months for a rabbit to become fertile. And every month they can have six. They can have a litter of six. Wow. So I thought this is a fun way. My puzzle was let's do Fibonacci's puzzle again with scientifically accurate data about the reproductive habits of rabbits. And where do we get? And it turns out um, I'm giving a spoiler here. (laughs) And this is this is a puzzle which has a surprising result. You probably wouldn't want to work it all the way through unless you had a computer, because if a rabbit, a single rabbit, female rabbit, if she becomes fertile after six months, if she then has six rabbits every month for her lifespan, which a lifespan of a rabbit is seven years, or it can be seven years, and if each of her offspring also breed like her, and we say that of her litter three are girls three are boys how many total 
people what's the what's the size of her family when <laughs> when she's dying wow what's the size of her family and you would think i don't know a few thousand yeah yeah maybe a few isn't maybe a million what it is it's something like 26 trillion Jeez. which turns out is more rabbits than there have been humans that have existed wow ever so that is amazing that's, that's you're good. saying the wow so it, so it's, it's i invented that but anyone else could have invented that it, it, it wasn't like a new coin trick or or, 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 or something <laughs> like that but it was just a sense of looking at what's been around, how to rephrase it for the modern day, to have a bit of fun, and to have something which is such a surprising wow answer. To think that actually, if you took away all predators and all um, problems about getting food, <laughs> one rabbit in their lifetime would outbreed humanity. Jeez. That's amazing. I'll tell you what, there's two, <laughs> there's two things that make me say wow there. There's the result of that puzzle. But also, Alex, I think, have I been saying, I'm saying Fibonacci, have I been saying that wrong all, all the time? How are you pronouncing his name there? And am, am I right? Yeah, yeah, I don't know, Fibonacci, Fibonacci, maybe that's just because I'm I'm a posh southerner. I like it, I like it though. <laughs> I don't know, Fibonacci. <laughs> a new little twist. Fibonacci, Fibonacci, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the chances are you're probably more likely to be right than me on that one. So I, th I think I'll go with that. I might, might change that. That's good. That's good. That. Um, just again, this may be an impossible question, Alex. But do you have any criteria about what makes a good puzzle? Is, is there anything you're looking for? Is it is it the surprise? Is that a key aspect of it, or is there other other features you're looking at? The difference between a puzzle and a problem is that a puzzle is entertainment. Oh wow! It's okay. got to have something. It's got to have something that's fun or entertaining about it. And obviously, it's not clear cut. But when I'm looking for something, it's got to be amusing or satisfying. And this is going to be the, there are different ways that you can make something entertaining. It can be because it's a surprise. That's something. Mm. It can be that the setup is is whimsical. Yes. It can be that the process of deduction is easy and satisfying. You know. The, the very first logic puzzle, which is the one, you know, a guy is traveling with a wolf, a goat, and a bunch of carriages, and then gets to a riverside and needs to cross and sees a boat, but can only take one thing at a time. That ticks almost all the, it was almost the perfect puzzle. It's like, firstly, the setup is just funny. Yes. And it's on your grip. What? He's got these things with him, and you're imagining this cabbage. <laughs> How does he carry the cabbage? It's, it's funny. Then, to solve it's not that difficult and it's really satisfying mm. <clears throat> eliminating the things that he can't do yes. to work out what he has to do. So that's satisfying. And the press of deduction you're working out, you're getting there. And then the answer, which is that he needs to take one thing over back again and then over again, mm. is kind of counterintuitive. Yes. So you've got a sort of slight element of surprise there that you've realized that to get everything across, yeah, you've got to take something across and then back in, which you, you would have thought that's a waste. So I think that that has everything. Um, the, the, the if puzzles, I've got to have one of those things, really, either kind of whimsy, humor, <clears throat> surprise, or a kind of pleasurable process of deduction.
That's nice. Fantastic. I like that. And just to hook readers in, we always get there. We, we got again. We got Rob Easterway to do this. Um, is there a puzzle that you can set for uh, for listeners? We we used to have this when I first started this podcast maybe five years ago. Every guest used to submit a puzzle, but again, it it just kind of died a death. But I'm I'm looking to to resurrect this now, Alex. So is there is there a puzzle you can just give as a bit of a teaser for for listeners to be thinking about, and then as a little incentive they can uh, get you <laughs> to find the answer. Um. That is very difficult because what works orally yes, is not course. what works on the page. So um, I'm just flicking through the book now. I'm just thinking if there's something really, really obvious. The word stressed is the longest English word to have which property. There you go. Oh, wow. Nice and simple. The, the word stressed... The longest English words have which property? Flipping heck. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I'm going to be driving home thinking about that. I love it. Fantastic. Super fantastic. Okay, Alex, right. Well, to bring things to a close, before I hand over to you for your big three, we will also give guests an opportunity just to reflect. You can go as deep or as shallow as you want with this. But is, is there an example of something important that you've changed your mind about? The thing that I have completely changed my opinion about is superstition about numbers and favorite numbers. So <laughs> when I started off, I was very much ah, poo-pooing. This, who's got a favorite number? What is this imbecilic thing to talk about? Who over the age of five is anything about favorite numbers? Absolutely ridiculous. And it's, it's like superstition. It's like this kind of, you know, it's like medieval people. And then I started looking into favorite numbers and also notice the fact that in the Far East, they are much more superstitious about numbers and they're much more playful with numbers than we are in the West. But also, interestingly, are a lot better at arithmetic and are less afraid of arithmetic and do better in all these kind of standardized international tests and, and league tables. And at first I thought, well, that's interesting, that's a contradiction. And then... I sort of made the realization that I think actually it's not a contradiction. They, it is true that, you know, in China, they're terrified with the number four because it sounds like the word for death. They don't like ever saying four. You would never give anyone a gift of four things. Right. They don't have fourth floors. You know, it's a bit like 13 here, yes. but it's stronger. And it's a number that appears a lot more times than 13 yes. does. Okay. And then first, uh, you know, there's an amazing anecdote, actually, that in America, where they've got very good demographic data, it turns out that the Chinese-American and Japanese-American communities, death by heart attack spikes on the fourth of each month. Wow. And the only way of explaining it is because it's the death of each month. There's some kind of, they're so worried about it, Jeez. it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> so I'm not suggesting that people become so superstitious that they're going to die on the 13th of the month <laughs> in the way that they die on the 4th of the month. But what it means, if you do have a strong kind of belief about a number, say four is unlucky, you need to have pretty good arithmetic so that you're never left with four of something. <laughs> if you are going to buy, you've got three kids and you want to um, buy some cookies for them, you're not going to buy 12 cookies. So you'd have to give four each. And you could never do that. 
So I feel that these cultures are much more superstitious, but they sort of have a lot more fun with numbers. There's a lot more kind of number puns with numbers. Um, the Japanese and the Chinese, from, from what I know and from what I can tell what I've researched, are a lot more, a lot more into that kind of talking about the emotional negotiation with a number. And that, I'm sure, links into the fact that they are less afraid of the actual arithmetic. So now, rather than poo-pooing people with their favorite numbers, I like totally encourage people to think about numbers in an emotional way, in a non-mathematical way. Because I think the more you just have, you play around with numbers in your life, the more intimate you are with them, the less afraid you are of arithmetic and kind of the less afraid you are of numbers. So I've totally changed my point of view on that. I used to think that all that talking favorite numbers was silly, and now I actually think that it's it's really positive and helpful, and there's a kind of cultural change that if we were all talking about numbers all the time, we would be a lot better at math and arithmetic. Do you know what? That's fascinating, that. So as, as you know from, from being on the show, one of my speed dating, well, the first speed dating question is, what is your favourite yeah. number? Now, obviously, I'm far too professional to name names here, but I've had quite a few quite high-profile guests on this show who, in our email correspondence, have said, I'd rather not answer that question. It's a bit of a daft question. Can we get straight to the serious stuff? But now I've got a counter-argument now, thanks to that, Alex. So I've, No, yeah. totally. So, so when I go and I give talks, sometimes I talk about things like, favorite numbers and it is probably the only subject that is of equal interest to the people who are really don't like maths and aren't very good at it as the people who are absolutely brilliant and love it yeah um, yes there's about 10 percent of people who are like oh no no it's a bit daft it's a bit silly i don't want to get involved but you go into any group of people and say who here's got a favorite number it's always about three quarters of the room no matter what age they are, yes. what ability they are, what gender they are. And so you've already won yeah, three quarters yeah. of the room. Um, <laughs> I, I, th I think it's, it's like a great way in to talking about other things. And I never would have thought I would have said that because I thought it was all kind of silly and daft. But actually, I think it's brilliant and, and rich and positive for the whole field. Fantastic. I'll keep that question in there, Alex. That's, that's fantastic. Super. Well, final question from me before I hand over to you for your big three. Um, what do you wish you'd known when you first started out in your career that you know now? <laughs> that journalism was about to die and that publishing was then about to die. I think I felt that I've just been jumping off ships <laughs> as the whole, the entire industry is collapsing. So... <laughs> I'm, I'm, it's really hard to answer that question, but I just know that I have been, you know, I was a journalist until it was impossible to be a journalist anymore because there just weren't any jobs. And I've been lucky to make a living from publishing, but publishing is also suffering and kind of shrinking. Um, so maybe if I had predicted the way the world was going to change better, I would have not always be kind of scrabbling around 
trying to jump to the next thing. Well, you've I had got, a bit more security. You've got <laughs> you've got elliptical pool tables to fall back on, Alex. Anyway, so I do, I do. Fine. You'll be fine. <laughs> okay, so to to wrap things up, we always give guests an opportunity to to give their big three. So this could be three websites, blog posts, it could be anything you want, and I'll put links to these on the show notes. But what would you recommend our listeners check out, Alex? Okay, I'm gonna say three things that are quite linked to where I am at the moment. Um, the first one, I also need to put things that I imagine no one has said before, so it's new. If you haven't gone to Tanya Hovnova's puzzle blog, you really should. Wow. It's absolutely no. brilliant. Say say that t- name again, Alex. This sounds good already. She's this. Tanya Hovanova. That's K-H-O-V. A N O V A. Yep. And she's been, she is a Russian, but she's been living in America for 20, 30 years, mathematician. And she write, has been, written this kind of quite personal puzzle blog for about 15 years. And she is the maven of the puzzle world in America anyway. She's, she's, she's brilliant. There's so much fantastic stuff there that it's, re- it's really worth going to. In fact, she is the person who designed the puzzle that is on the cover of Can You Solve My Problems, nice. which is the kind of meta puzzle of the five shapes, which is the odd one out. Yes, wow. So that's great. Fantastic. No, we've the, never, never had that before. That's a very strong start. I like that. Right. The other thing is, I've mentioned that I've through my puzzle column, I found out about the Linguistics Olympiads. I would recommend going to UK Linguistics Olympiad. That's UKLO.org, I think. Hang on, I'll just find it here. Well, it's, anyway, UK Linguistics Olympiad. You, um, I find it? I'm sure it's UCLO. Yeah, it's UCLO. Yeah, it's UCLO. And the other one is a bit, a bit more random. <laughs> Having got into these linguistics problems, a lot of which are quite mathematical because it's all about looking for patterns, but in language, I stumbled across a podcast. In fact, you may be, you know the person doing it because I think she might be in Preston. I think she's at the University of Lancaster, oh, which right. I think is in Preston. Or maybe it's in Lancaster. <laughs> and quite near you. You're, you're alienating and, the Northwest here, but go on. <laughs> sorry, sorry. But it's He's the same county. It's the same county. <laughs> well, no, I know it because my um, nephew went to UCLan, yes, which is that's that Preston. is in Preston. That's correct. And yeah. I couldn't remember if she's at Lancaster or UCLan. Anyway, um, there's a woman called Claire Hardacre who had a podcast on forensic linguistics, which is when you use try and solve crimes using linguistics and her podcast is called on claire which is en underscore c-l-a-i-r which is a kind of pun because she's called claire but on claire it kind of means for all to see nice Uh, and her podcasts are about forensic linguistics are about language but they're so mathematical because often what you're doing is you're search you use you're searching millions of texts and looking for data that comes out of it and she has um that that blog that blog that that podcast is absolutely fascinating so if you like math and you like language it's absolutely gripping and she's yeah 
I don't, I don't want to say more, but it's really, it's, it's, it's I've been listening to that all the time in the last couple of weeks. So that is kind of what's on my radar at the moment. Wow, that is a that's really fa- good. That is a fascinating selection. There'll be links to all those <laughs> links to all those in the show notes. Well, um, Alex, we, we've reached the end of our conversation, and I just want to um, thank you for a couple of things. Obviously, thank you first and foremost for giving up your time to, to speak to me on this evening, and for putting up with the the technical hitches uh, that that, oft, that sometimes crop up in the, in the world of podcasting. But on on a wider note. Um, Again, I started this podcast to, to speak to my heroes, whether they're uh, teachers um, or educators or essentially my kind of bucket list of maths authors. And I, I'm getting to the end of it now because I've had a fry, <laughs> Simon Singh and Alex Bellas. I don't, I, I don't think I can top that anymore. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. I, I genuinely love, love your books. I don't have people on oh, thank here you. Who, who, unless I like genuinely have a passion for them. You can, you can, I, I like exactly as you've said, you can read them as stories or you can dip into them and do the interesting puzzles they're things that if i have a um, a child whether they're year seven year eight or whatever who wants to do some wider reading it's i can i can recommend that to them i've given it to numerous people who've applied for maths uh, they're going for interviews uh, uh, for university for math degrees and stuff just as some something interesting to talk about in their interviews and what's what's been fascinating about that is those people have come back and they've genuinely enjoyed the book it, it's not just that they they've read it and then it's just been a means to an end to, to try and get into uni they've come back and said well actually that was that was a really good book that sir so it's something that's again pleasurable for all ages and it, it's really inspiring that the, the work you do and as i said I'm, i have a particular passion for those uh that those guardian puzzles that you keep writing so oh, thank you uh, so yeah thank you for all you do alex and as i say it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you this evening well thank you it's been a pleasure for me too thanks So there you have it. There was my interview with journalist, puzzle guru and author Alex Bellos. I really hope you enjoyed that one and found it as useful and fascinating as I did. As I say, I recorded it um, on the spare bed at my mother and father-in-law's house. Um, It could have gone horribly wrong, but thanks to Alex's charm and and willingness to share wonderful stories, um, I thought it went really well. I certainly had a good time anyway. Um, So in this takeaway, um, I just want to reflect on a few things from from the conversation, as as I usually do. And the first is just a general thing about the power of stories. Um, I could have listened to Alex all day long. Um, I've been really lucky to, on this podcast over the years, to speak to some really gifted storytellers. Um, And often it's it's quite a hallmark of of being a good teacher or a feature of being a good teacher is the ability to tell a story. Whether this is to introduce a concept, whether it's some historical background or a personal anecdote from from your own experience with with, with a topic um we know from 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 research into this that that the story structure um is is a really powerful way to convey information i I talk about this in in how i wish i taught maths about how humans have have evolved over many years to be receptive to the story structure because of the way we used to share stories around campfires and so on and so forth and this idea of a beginning a middle and an end and a hook and so on and so forth um it it really goes in it it really resonates and i certainly found that just listening to alex i could have spoke to him um all night it's it's just fascinating to, to hear these tales and wherever possible when i'm introducing a new idea a new concept i look for that story around it that 
hook around it. Not not shoehorning in some dodgy real life reason why we're doing this particular topic, but maths has just got such a rich history of um, of interesting characters, interesting turn of events, and if we can harness those to just tell a little story, to frame a topic, to set up a topic, I just think it's it's a really engaging in the best use of that word way to introduce students to something. Um, the other thing I wanted just to talk about was um, technology. Um, I'd never thought about that, um, the point Alex made that why he thinks, well, one of the reasons he thinks the public perception to maths is, is changing and changing in a positive way is the emergence of technology. Um, it's all over. It dominates society and particularly it dominates the lives of the students we teach and how it's, it's hard to escape the fact that maths drives these, these technological innovations. Um, and again, as I described in, in the conversation, it got me thinking about how my teaching has improved immeasurably through, through technology. GeoGebra, Desmos, Autograph, Wolfram Alpha, even just being able to, to use interactive whiteboards in an effective way in the sense that I can call up things, hide things, go to, go to the internet, animate things, structure things and so on and so forth um, in carefully planned ways that, that just just enable me to teach better. And the flip side of this, of course, is that, um, again, when I, when I was learning mathematics at school, um, there wasn't much technology bombing around. And indeed, some of my favourite lessons that, that I've taught over the years have involved little or very no, no technology whatsoever, just a, armed with a pen and a board and, and that's it. And of course, like anything, technology can be used the wrong way. Um, shoehorning in technology just for the sake of it can be, be an absolute disaster. But it's a real golden age at the moment to, to, to be a teacher in general, but particularly a maths teacher with some of the wonderful, wonderful, generally free as well, uh, technological resources that, that, that we've got out there. And I know some schools are lucky to have uh, device, kids have got devices with them, whether they're iPads, Chromebooks or whatever, and, and I see some wonderful uses of that. But yeah, it's um, I've never made that association before between the growth of technology and the changing perception of um, the public and students perhaps to, towards mathematics. Um, puzzles. So, of course, the, the, the central thing Alex and I were, were talking about, or supposed to be talking about, before we were off on all kinds of wonderful tangents, was uh, was puzzles and Alex's creation or curation of those puzzles. And I want to go back to a point that I've made before on this podcast, um, that puzzles, a mistake I've made in the past, um, well, well, two mistakes, really. One is just kind of discovering a puzzle that I found interesting and just kind of chucking it on kids without even thinking about whether it's appropriate and, and whether they'll enjoy it as much as me, do they have the necessary background knowledge and so on and so forth. So I, I definitely think I've been guilty of that. And that, that's true of any new idea. Come up with a new idea, see something fancy, and straight away it's in the classroom on Monday morning with, with very little thought from me behind it. So that's one mistake. But I think the bigger mistake I've made with, with puzzles is solely using them as extension material. So students finish a particular sequence of questions or activity or exercise and kind of their reward is the puzzle. And what that inevitably means is um, only a few students get to experience that. And if it's a particularly good puzzle um, in, in the sense that, and I go back to what Rob Easterway spoke about um, when I interviewed him, if it has this, these moments of ah, ha or ha ha, 
um, God, I went a bit posh there, haha. Um, then I want as many kids as possible to to experience those moments of surprise or joy or humour and so on and so forth. But that that just didn't happen when I when I kind of save these puzzles as, as extension materials once we've got through the rest of maths. And particularly, like, if we take something like Enrich, I think it's, when I speak to teachers, there's still this perception that that's how you use Enrich. You use Enrich for extension material. But particularly in the last few years, I think a lot of a lot of work has gone into the Enrich site to, to ensure that the, the puzzles, or whether you call them problems or activities, whatever label you give them, are structured in a way, and there's teacher support there, to ensure that all students can, can benefit from them. And indeed, one thing I'm trying to do with my teaching these days is make these puzzles or problems um, at the centre of things. So, of course, students need to go through, I think, routine practice. I think so anyway. And again, people who have heard me talk will, will know how I try to improve that practice by making it what I call intelligent practice with these sequences of related questions. But I want to ensure I dedicate some time to allow all students to appreciate and experience some of these wonderful puzzles that, that, that are out there. I find them so much, well, I think pupils find them so much more engaging than, than kind of real life maths and shoehorning in real life maths. They, they provide a, a purpose for doing something in a way that... It kind of it, kids very rarely ask what's the point of doing this when when they're, when they're right into a really good puzzle or a really good problem. I think they're so important, and yeah, just again, it's more a message to myself as often these takeaways are to ensure that as many kids as possible experience these these puzzles and they're not just extension material. And that brings me to the final point, and again, it's it's something Alex raised that I'd not considered before, and um, the importance of students know knowing whether they're right or wrong when they're working on one of these puzzles or one of these problems, because they can be frustrating. There's no doubt about that. And again, I, I talk a lot about this in in my book and, and, and in talks about how if kids are struggling for too long and feel they're not getting anywhere. It can be really off-putting, and a lot of students, particularly if they've had negative experiences of mathematics over the over the years, they don't last long in those moments of struggle. Other kids can be fine; they can struggle for an entire lesson, potentially not get anywhere, but enjoy the struggle, enjoy the experience. But for me, it's all it's all predicated on their their past experiences of success. Have they been successful? Do they feel they can be successful? Because if they have they're more likely to struggle. But if we bring this back to, to, to the puzzles and the point Alex was, was making, it's really important that as a student works on a puzzle or a problem, they can look at it and think either, yeah, I've nailed that, or no, actually, I know that that's not right. And that's the beauty of, of some of the Japanese puzzles that Alex spoke about. And again, some of the, 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 the really good and rich uh, problems and puzzles that are out there, you know when you've got an answer whether that answer's right. And that's important because it gives you that adrenaline rush, it gives you that buzz, and particularly if that puzzle then goes on to something more complex, whether it's a, a bigger grid in the size of the, the in the terms of the Japanese problems, um, or if it's a, an enriched problem or, or something like that, or an open middle problem, if there's another stage, now let's consider this, now let's consider this. You, that that adrenaline, it's, it's hard to resist because I've, I've, I know I've got the first bit of this right, Ooh, that next bit, that looks a bit enticing. Let's have a go at this. I know I've got that right because I can see it from the solution. I can see it fits all the criteria. Wow, there's another bit to have a go at and so on and so forth. Whereas 
if you don't know whether you're right, well, kind of what's the point in carrying on? Because I might have got this first bit wrong, so I'll probably wait until somebody checks my answer before I have a go at the next. So whenever I'm um, choosing puzzles and problems, this is something I'm going to really try and bear in mind. Can my kids work on this without me being there to say that's right or that's wrong? And I think that's now going to be a really key criteria for my choice of puzzles and problems going forward. And it reminded me when um, I was talking to Alex, one of my favourite um, puzzles that I used to always give kids, and I've, I've, I've stopped doing this, I stopped doing this about eight years ago, something like this, but it, it was always kind of my first first lesson with a, with a class, or the first time I met a class, um, I would always start uh, their mathematical experience with me as their teacher with this puzzle, and again, many, many of you may have heard this, but I got a bit nostalgic for puzzles speaking to Alex, and, and as, as long-time listeners of this show will know, um, guests always used to give a podcast puzzle um, at the end, and I, I stopped that just because again some guests couldn't think of one and then anyway blah 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 but let's end this takeaway with with one of my my favorite puzzles and you you may well know this i'm sure you do but but i love this now it's one of those it's a bit hard to describe but just bear with me um i i I call it the eight eight box puzzle but it may may well have um, other names so you've got a picture the setup here yeah you need eight boxes but they're arranged in in a very specific way so you've got two there's basically three rows of boxes here so you've got two boxes on the first row then directly below them you've got four boxes but they're arranged so the middle two boxes are directly below the two boxes on the first row so you've got two boxes on the first row four boxes on the second row and then two boxes on the third row again lined up so they're um, they're bang in the center of the four boxes if that makes sense so if you're looking at this grid you can essentially see a two by three rectangle of boxes straight down the center with kind of then two boxes tagged on the end of the second row. Wow, did I describe? Is that prob- probably the worst description of a, a set of boxes you've ever heard? Anyway, if you pi- if you can imagine that that kind of grid of eight boxes and they're touching they're they're touching each other, and the challenge is, can you put the numbers one to eight into that arrangement, but um, with the criteria that no consecutive numbers are in boxes that touch each other either vertically, horizontally or diagonally so for example if you put a five in the middle row far left box you couldn't have a four in the box to the right of it you could also not have a four in the box diagonally right and up in that box because it touches it at the corner and you also couldn't have a four diagonally right and down because that touches it Oh, and you couldn't have a six in any of those boxes either because four and six are consecutive to five, if that makes sense. Um, I've described that so badly. I'll put, I'll put a grid in, in the show notes. But again, it fits the criteria that Alex described that once you have your numbers in the grid, you know straight away whether you're right or wrong because all you have to do is, is check your boxes to see if any consecutive numbers are touching. Now, again, what, what math skills does that help develop? Is it is it these vague resilience, grit, and so on and so forth? Is it some vague notion of problem solving? I don't know, but I know that it gets students thinking hard, it gets them talking, and there's an important kind of number property that comes out of this puzzle. Anyway, 
as you can see from that, that's probably why I don't have best-selling puzzle books out there, and Alex does. Anyway, I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, just to, to thank a few people, obviously Alex for giving up his time. Um, it was an absolute joy to speak to him. Uh, thank you to Isaac9 for, for sponsoring this podcast. Do check out their website. That's izak9.com. Uh, thank you to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. And thank you to you, the loyal listeners. Um, I know I've been on a bit of a, hi- a hiatus. I think that's how you say it for, from this podcast for a while. If, you, if you're listening, uh, it kind of as these episodes come out. That's because I'm working on um, on a project at the moment. I'll be announcing more details of that in the near future. But thank you for for sticking with me. I've um, got some absolute cracking guests coming up um, over the course of the next few weeks and the next few months. Um, I can't wait to share them with you. But for now, I'm going to go and blow my nose because I've got a bit of a cold. You take care of yourselves. Bye for now. <laughs> <laughs>